everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome back to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. End of the year. End of the year, and I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, who's, of course, combi box operator, but just a fellow boxing guy like myself. We're talking some end of the year stuff, but also kind of bidding a fond farewell to Showtime Boxing. Uh, it's been a heck of a year, so got some stuff to say. Eris, how you doing, man? Everything is good, bro. How was your holidays? I mean, you know, it's, it's stressful. It's crazy. There's a lot of shit going on. You know, normal stuff. Normal stuff. But how was yours, man? Same, dude. I went back to go visit my dad in Massachusetts, which was nice and relaxing. And um, that was about the gist of it, man. I don't really celebrate the holidays like that. Because there's just a lot of people around in New York. And then I leave there. And it's just traveling back to Mass. And then coming back. And just, I don't know. It's just a stressful time. But all sure. is good. Yeah, it's a little bit different when you have like kids and shit, you know. You're... Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I mean, and all I that shit. Day, yeah, <laughs> if I get kids one day, then I'm sure that whole perception will change again. But at this moment, I'm kind of indifferent to all these times, even though I look forward to New Year's because I do have fun on New Year's. But regardless, <laughs> um, speaking of the year, we had a hell of a year for boxing. 2023 was pretty incredible. Yeah, dude. Started out with the ones we've had for a number, a number of years. And I, you know, oh, listen, if you're a boxing fan, you're a jaded fan. You get it. You just already expect disappointment. It comes with the territory. You know what you're getting into. And you get your hopes up for many things and always come out disappointed 99% of the time. Um, there's just various reasons for why, but you always stick with it because you're just addicted, just because we are. We're just degenerates, excuse me, for the sport. And um, with that being said, though, it was almost like all these years of being used and abused for a minute, like we were finally rewarded with a hell of a year in 2023. Yeah, you know, I think there's probably, <clears throat> excuse me, there's there's a tendency to, if anybody knows either of us at all, right, they're probably know us as the kind of boxing history, you know, weirdos, the guys who pretty much like boxing history or whatever. And there's probably going to be an assumption that we are going to have a bias toward fighters from other generations or other eras or, or not like modern fighters or contemporary fighters or whatever. And I get that. Like, I understand how logically people would draw that conclusion or whatever. But the fact of the matter is even us weirdos, us guys who were sitting here, you know, wringing our hands over some shit that happened 75 years ago or whatever, we can still acknowledge that the last few years have actually been really good um there are a lot of people running around you know look see what pbc did they killed showtime too you know it's so but so and so killed hbo we got no hbo boxing pbc killed showtime it's in the shitter you know people are looking like it's about to it, it's like a cycle every couple of years we get this shit where it's circling the drain and then sure enough, something new happens. It's just how it goes. You know, boxing adapts. Boxing's never going to go anywhere. So, uh, I'm still on Twitter. Sorry. Like, oh, just dude, think I don't fucking, <laughs> I'm barely even there. Like, same thing, man. I just kind of post randomly here and there, but it's like, why, you know, what? Because that's basically what you were just saying is everything that's always being said on Twitter and just the nonsense and the argument all the time, you know? Yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to play like I never say anything negative like that. You know, that'd oh. be stupid. You could literally just look at my social media posts. But I mean, but I'm fully capable of saying like, look, dude, something is good and it's okay that it's good. We can acknowledge that it's good and it's hard to celebrate it. Um, and, you know, 
the point is, after that the miniature rant, 2023, the past few years have been very good. And 2023 is a calendar year for boxing. Started out with a real sprint. Um, I can't remember what what exact date it was, but it was like February 20-something. I remember tweeting at some point, holy shit, like we've gotten like eight weeks or seven weeks into the new year and we already have like five, six fight of the year type contenders. Hold, what the hell's going on? And part of that is blind luck. Some of it's matchmaking. You know, some of those fights were not meant to be that competitive, but they just were. Uh, that's fine from a fan perspective. I'm not going to complain, but point is the action's been great. We've gotten a number of kind of uh, unification type fights, fights for the undisputed championship, which is the kind of thing that fans have been fucking whining down to their britches about for years, and they got it. We got one of the fights that we were whining about in Crawford Spence. You know, we got that. And on top of that, many of the other fights, Gervonta Davis versus Ryan Garcia, which wasn't as competitive, but a big fight. We got a number of the kinds of blockbuster type of fights that we had been asking for as fans and demanding from a competitive standpoint. And then we also got a whole lot of really good fights. And then on top of that, to kind of top it off, this whole fighter of the year discussion or whatever, all of the guys, all of, well, and the women too, for that matter, all of the fighters in the fighter of the year discussion are legitimately really good fighters like <clears throat> it's a bit early for most of them to say they're like you know all-time type shit let's like let's get off the fucking terrence crawford comparing them to all-time great welterweights type of shit. like relax settle down but clearly a very very good fighter alexander Usyk, really really good fighter naoya inoue perhaps the greatest japanese fighter of all time at this point which is saying a lot so in any case this is a debate where we're talking about some really, really, really fucking good fighters here, man. Dude, it's been an incredible year, and I was blessed to work um, a number of those fights from beginning to end. It's been a hell of a busy year for me. You know, we talked about Dude, it a lot. you've been working your ass off, bro. <laughs> yeah, because almost every Saturday you had you would like you know you message me about a fight, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm counting so and so at the moment. You're just coming like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. But like you said, man, it was a year that like a lot of fights that we didn't think would be made ended up being made. Terrence Crawford and um, Errol Spence. How long has people been clamoring for that fight? Years upon years for now. And um, I don't know if people, if it was a little past its expiration date, who knows? But like they finally got together this year and no one thought it was going to happen. It finally did happen. Um, a lot of players involved to make it happen, but it finally came to fruition and um, Crawford asserted his Mostly Al Heyman. Good for him, you know, absolutely. And as much as people want to hate on PBC, but like naming my nest pet Al. <laughs> yeah, Al, you had um Showtime that helped out and everyone that kind of came together and Crawford, you know, finally being a free agent, being able to work together for that. It it finally came together and Crawford asserting his dominance in that one performance that you just beat the shit out of him incredibly that made him one of those that people look at him as a generational talent. Sure doesn't make top rank look good in that situation. Absolutely fucking not. Definitely, definitely Which not. we had brought up at the time on podcasts, but man, sheesh. Yeah, it's been kind of a rough year for top rank. I mean, it's, I don't know. They, they've had a lot, you know, a number of success, uh, successes, but at the same time, you know, they lost Crawford. They, um, they had, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Lomachenko 
losing a really, really highly disputed decision to uh, Devin Haney and other stuff like that. But I mean, at the same time, they're still promoting uh, maybe the best fighter on the planet in, in a way, depending on how you want to look at it and a number of other top flight guys. So, I mean, it's not like they're going anywhere. As much as Rick Glazer um, and Bob <laughs> saying that they're about to be sold to a, what are they, TKO Endeavor, whatever it's going to be. Yeah, yeah well, he's he's also been uh and he's also been predicting the imminent demise of PBC for like uh I don't know how many years now. He's like next month, Waddle and Reed. Like I'm, he'll just yeah, say I'm Waddle not sure, and Reed. I'm not sure if he was on Twitter back when PBC first existed, but um I'm sure ever since PBC first became he would have fit player. right in. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't know, man. What a piece of shit he is, anyways. But back to the <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> Yeah. Back to um but the banner year, though, like you said, it was just a bunch of great fights that happened. Whether they're like mega fights or not, it was just, it seemed like back to back, we were just getting blessed all the time with like incredible weekends where everybody can just talk about it in the next few days and just get excited about what was to come. You know, and and not to to pick on top rank or single them out either, because because there are, I mean, at least on my part, there are some personal kind of bones I have to pick or whatever. But again, not to single them out because Golden Boy had a couple of hiccups this year too. And that's not even talking about the figurehead who just can't keep his fucking shit straight publicly, like at all in any way whatsoever, but also matchroom dude, matchroom took some pretty big hits this year. Their reputation took a pretty big hit with Connor Ben and all of his bullshit uh, and their ongoing relationship with that. And then on top of that, there's this kind of veneer of the, uh, of Saudi Arabia and their money, creeping in. I mean, they're not, nah, I don't know about creeping in. They've, they're locked in, <laughs> they're locked in. So there's, that's something that I think a lot of people are really reluctant to, to delve into, uh, you know, and, and a lot of these kinds of things and including the showtime situation with PBC, I think for a lot of fans and a lot of media, they believe that that casts a shadow over boxing's future in 2024. Me, I'm not really so sure. I think that there's still a shit that's there's still a lot of shit that's left to be developed, and uh, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, companies have been around for a long time for a reason. You know, they're really resilient and figure out ways to do shit. But um, that being said, yeah, dude, a lot of stuff going into 2024, at least action wise, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, or I was just mentioning, this is like business nonsense that you have to be really a fan to be into and following. And even a lot of massive, you know, hardcore fans don't give a fuck about it. Understood. I'm kind of with you for the most part, action wise, in terms of just the fights and the level of fighters and everything, 2023 it was good shit, dude. That's just the, the bottom line, you know, um, I don't really care too much about naming fight of the year, fighter of the year, at least not in like a, you know, a firm sense. Like, all right, this is my fighter of the year. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. We used to do that in years past, but I think we're kind of just not really into that sh shit at this point. However, I do still want to talk about it. I am curious because there has been a somewhat lively debate about the fighter of the year, the potential fighter of the year in the past few days, as there always is at the end of the year. Um, but I think there are some legitimate arguments here and there. Some people believe it's Terrence Crawford because of his massive win over Errol Spence. But the knock against that is that was his only showing in 2023. Massive showing, but his only showing. Whereas other people are saying, look at Neoe Anue. He, uh, you know, unified twice on un two-division undisputed champion. 
And then on top of that, you know, fought a fairly high profile fight against Steph Fulton that many people felt was going to be competitive and simply wasn't. Um, some people feel that his breadth, his, you know, bulk or whatever you want to say is a little bit better than others, you know, yet others might look elsewhere. I think some people are looking toward Devin Haney too. No big argument, but I don't really know that he's in the argument with Inoue and Crawford personally, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I mean, we, we were discussing this before the show and it's just something that it hasn't happened many times in history, but has happened before that. Like there are times when, you know, you can kind of co-share fighter of the year. And this might be one of those instances, even though you might have a feeling one re- um, for one reason or another, why, whether Terrence Crawford or in a way should be fighter of the year, them being one A and one B are just, you know, tied up and just having themselves as co-fighter of the year is not the worst thing on the planet. They both had massive accomplishments of what they were able to do this year. You know, in a way, blasting away Fulton and, you know, unifying the division, moving up the way he did and just dominating and proving himself, like you said at the beginning of the show, potentially the greatest fighter that's ever come from Japan, which is like a crazy honor when you think of like the history that comes from that country in general, um, is unbelievable himself but then Crawford even though it was just one fight it was the biggest fight you can make in boxing it's the one that fans have been salivating for for absolutely years and debating about who's the absolute best at welterweight for supremacy and had Crawford won the fight but it was like really close when the people are clamoring for a rematch I don't think you know it would be that much debate in terms of like thinking in a way was fighter of the year because his dominance was much more clearer whereas Crawford say he won like a controversial decision and then they were going to have a rematch with Spence, it would be that. But the thing is, Crawford absolutely demolished Spence. Like, there was no question from the first bell to the end of the fight who was in contention of that fight. Like, Crawford just busted him up from the very beginning, just beat the brakes off of him. And the dominance of that and solidifying himself as just the absolute best of his generation and, you know, in terms of, like, welterweights and stuff like that and just that talent and where he's at, kind of, you know, that's in people's minds too, saying, okay, he has to be fighter of the year because he's already one of the top uh, fighters on the planet. And he fought the only person that's given him contention in terms of who can, act, you know, maybe become um, the dominant champion of that division. And he beats the shit out of him, just like stops him and dominates him. So yeah, he should be fighter of the year in terms of that. There's been fighters away from years past. We've talked about that after just one performance. That win right there solidifies them as maybe fighter of the year, not there in high, high of contention. So I get it, but, you know, there's been past years like, uh, what was it, 1981, when Sugar Ray Leonard stopped um, Thomas Herms in the same year, Salvador Sanchez stopped Wilfredo Gomez. They were co-fighters of the year. Uh, 1985, when Marvin Hagler became fighter of the year and the Don Curry himself solidified himself as the dominant welterweight, kind of the same way Crawford did, just by, like, some, um, astoundingly destroying his uh, competition. They were co-fighters of the year. I know I'm missing maybe one or two other ones besides that, but like it's happened before. And so what I'm getting at is that like, I would just have them as a co-guys. Like I really can't really break them apart on that much. If I was really, if you put a gun to my head, I would say anyway, but like them sharing honors is still good in my book. Um, I'm I'm with you, dude. I think that, yeah, just for the sake of like saving people's sanity, (laughs) just, just put them as a co-fighter of the year. But if I had to lean one way, it would probably a new probably be a new way. And I can tell you that if a new way got it, Terrence Crawford is gonna be the saltiest fucking guy on the face of the planet about it, for sure. 
And and I understand very too. Very competitive, and I get it. And and I understand too because what we were talking about. Look, he he was in some ways uh, kind of done wrong. You know, the ball was dropped between him and Top Rank, and the way that Absolutely. he was, yeah, but the way that he was promoted in the last few years with Top Rank was not ideal at all. And uh, so he definitely feels like he missed opportunities at that point, which he probably did. And then on top of that, you know, he gets his crowning jewel is is his biggest achievement and like in a massive way, like not just kind of like ekes by or shows he's better, but barely, but just absolutely beat Spence down, gave him no chance, like didn't even let him in the fight. And then the way that he gets rewarded by that, you know, got rewarded financially, which is great, but he did not get rewarded the way that he feels he should, which is with fighter of the year. I get it. But, you know, the, I guess the arg- the argument that I've seen too, just to kind of close this out, so we're not, I'm not belaboring this too much, is I've seen some people argue then that, well, you know, Spence kind of screwed it up because they were going to rematch in December. But, you know, Spence, you know, canceled the rematch. He didn't want the rematch right away or whatever. And I'm kind of like, well, that might not be a great argument, though, because what if they had rematched in December and Spence looked like absolute fucking dog shit, you know, with respect to him, then that would kind of seem to confirm the suspicion that Spence was very much at the end of his career and at the end of his prime when they fought the first time. Whereas, you know, some other people might say, well, he's got two wins over Errol Spence in 2023. So that's even double that, you know, I don't know. I don't really have an answer for that. So I'd probably go with you. I think that having them 1A, 1B or something like that is probably fine. Yeah, and there's nothing absolute. And there's, un- no, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, both of them had absolute stellar years. One just had one fight. The other had a couple of more. But at the same time, they asserted their dominance over their divisions and asserted their places to be at the top in the world. I mean, like, these are talents that, like, we're going to end up telling our grandkids about one day. You know, that it was like I was around when I saw um in a way absolutely destroy so and so, which there's so many guys you can name. That's why I just said so and so because like just in a certain I remember name, being up at like five oh two AM on a fucking Thursday, watching him go to war with Nonito Donaire. Absolutely. We all would watch that first fight when he had his eye socket broken and just like, absorbed some of those monstrous left hooks. I'm that sitting here with like a cup of coffee, like half awake at you know, five forty one going, Holy shit. And then he just leaves Donaire in a crumpled heap in a rematch. And, like, his reflexes and everything. He's my he's my favorite active fighter to watch right now. Like, he's absolutely beautiful to watch. You know, there's just, there's just something about him with his fluidity, yeah. his patience, his everything, the combinations that he throws, like, his precision. Like, he's at, he's incredible. There's got to be a firm ceiling. And I'm not sure we've seen it, but Jesus Christ. I mean, like... You know, with Pacquiao, Pacquiao was obviously, like, I think frame-wise bigger, and you can see why, like, he was able to grow and things like that. But, like, I don't know where his ceiling's going to be. You know, he says he wants to stay at 122 for a bit and really clean it up. And trust me, there's guys there. I'd love to see him against Neary next, for instance. And, um, like, the way – all right. His last fight against uh, Tapalis, Tapalis, he – Tapalis, yeah. Tapalis, it's one of those things that's, like – you know when you have one of those elite guys that when they know they're not really in any type of um, like present danger, they don't mind taking a few more risks because they know what's in front of them can't do anything with them, right? So they're willing to take maybe a couple of more punches than usual or just settle down and kind of work on things, kinks, whatever. And he kind of got the sense that maybe, you know, he was kind of doing something like that in his last fight, even though he was in firm control and beating him down. The way he got hit with a couple of shots, even though 
you know, he was still statistically like very good on that end. He can't take the same risk against a guy like Neri, who's just like a wrecking ball hitter. You know what I mean? It will come in like was very strong and physically strong besides having absolute power in his fist and will come and comes with a different awkward style. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that next. And I'm sure people in Japan too, obviously, because they have a definite vendetta against that uh, against Neri. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a, a number of pretty big. Well, I mean, big for him. I, I wish there were a little bit more clamor for him stateside. Um, I don't know that I don't know why there isn't, but I wish there were a little bit more clamor for him stateside on the hardcore tip for sure. There's a lot of big fights. Um, but yeah, nothing that really moves the needle in the mainstream, unfortunately, but man, what a fucking fighter, just an incredible fighter. And you have to think at some point he's going to fight somebody where he lands those punches and like, they don't hurt them. But thus far, everybody gets hit by that shot and they're like, what, where am I? Like eventually he's going to run into his Aaron prior sooner or later, bro. You know? And (laughs) I, I mean, it happens. It happens to everybody, and I'm, I don't look forward to that happening. I just like I just like watching him fight, and it's good to see, you know. Well, you know what we get to look for next year is that a bunch of people saying he's probably ducking tank. <laughs> They've already been – a number of people have already said that. Like, How can you duck somebody who's not in the same division? Yeah. Weird, but anyway. No, it's, uh, it's fucking wild. I do have to ask you, though, like, speaking of great fights and whatnot, um, instead of going, what's the fight of the year? What was the fight of the year that you worked? What was the best fight you worked this year, do you think? Oh, man. You know, I'm going to be completely honest. Like, I never even really thought about it because a lot of them became a blur. I was working a lot. I know. It's it's different when you're working. You're not like, oh, this is a great action. It's like, yeah, I worked a lot and that's not i'm saying i'm not saying that as a complaint at all like i'm very i was blessed that i was able to work so much and be able to watch all these shows and you know do stuff like that but like um hmm. you know the neary against um how do you pronounce his last name hovenesian hovenesian that fight was pretty awesome yeah, I know. Was yeah, that was that was in the earlier part of the year, I believe, and that fight was pretty incredible. I worked that one. Um, in terms, like, I worked some big events too. Like, I worked the Tank Davis, uh, um, Ryan Garcia card, and I mean, listen, that wasn't the fight of the year whatsoever. But just in terms of like electricity and you know, watching Davis do absolutely nothing for a round and a half until he finally uncorked one left hand that blasted Ryan in the face and dropped him. That was pretty cool. Like, not even gonna front, like, that's that type of excitement. You're just kind of like, oh, shit, like, you knew that was gonna happen, and then it happens, and you're like, oh, wow, you know. Um, being able to watch in a way, um, and just I'd have to think about it, man. Like, if I really actually did some study and look back on the fights I worked, I would be like, oh, yeah, well, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, but like, I'd have to really actually think about that, you know what I mean? But a better one for me is that, like, my favorite moment of the year was probably in ganu dropping fury and that was my <laughs> fights i worked and that was it's just it's it's it was hysterical it was like exciting it was just like so many things that just kind of happened at that moment when you saw it happen you know what i mean it was like seeing fury just look absolutely flabbergasted at the same time like hurting kind of like you know dazed and confused of the whole series and then ganu like walking up on him and everyone just going absolutely ape shit and I'm sure everyone, everybody in their house, including every, all of us, were just kind of like, yo, you know, thinking that like an upset could possibly eminent, be imminent here. 
because Fury was like grossly out of shape. That was my favorite moment, just seeing him get uh, dropped like that. <laughs> the memes and whatnot. Yeah, that was a good moment. And the memes that came from it. Whoever drew that one little drawing of Tyson Fury with his cartoonish fucking... <laughs> Whoever drew that, bro, I'll fucking send you money. It was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, no, that was... That was... God, what an embarrassment that fucking guy is, bro. It was just the what way he got... Guy. That was a hard shot, but like... No, you know, the thing about that fight, it wasn't a good fight in general. Like, both guys were just really, you know, the punch output was mad and everything. But it was fascinating to watch to see that a guy like Nganu, who's coming out of the MMA, and was coming out of the UFC and MMA and so many questions. Yeah, he yep. was a over there with the hands, but how is he going to be able to handle the heavyweight champion of the world? Yeah, dude. That was, it was like Fury expected a fighter that was going to have far less technique. And we did too. We thought that we'd, he'd come in and be you know like the yeah. fucking like the ufc guys gif you know like we thought he'd be doing that shit and he didn't he was actually like fairly polished his technique was really good and i think that really fucking caught fury off guard like he was like well, his jab's good what the fuck am i doing yeah he yeah fury took a little while to adjust and i think that he ultimately did adjust but it was like you know and even when he tried to do like some of his things where you know he leans all his like weight on you and smothers you and all that, it didn't work against a guy like Umgano. That because... was what that's what really caught me off guard was how good he was inside. Like I was like, yo, like this is I some mean, almost like, Riddick Bow type shit. What the fuck is he doing? It was it was interesting at the same sense that it was like, well, you know, in, in MMA, look, I'm not an MMA expert, but like I know they do like an inside a lot of inside grappling and fighting sure. and stuff like that. He's kind of used to that stuff and knowing how to maneuver. Like, sure, he can't use his elbows on For sure, but that doesn't necessarily always translate to, like, infighting and boxing, but he made it. That's why I was like, whoa! Yeah, that was was a fascinating thing to watch. It was just like, holy crap, you know, just to see that whole thing unfold that way. Very interesting. Yeah, and and, and I mean, I guess it's somewhat oxymoronic to say, wow, it was fascinating, and he did so great, but then, like, turn around and say, Fury's a piece of shit, but... (laughs) I mean, do, I mean, we're talking about like the the fucking the entirety of his work here. We're <laughs> not just necessarily that fight, dude. I, I kind of just wish at this point he would just retire, not because I hate him or anything, but just because it's like it's holding everything up. He's not really doing anything, and I'm just kind of sick of hearing about him. <laughs> she just go I away. Hope, you know, like as twenty twenty four comes in, he's supposed to be fighting Usyk at the beginning of the year and i just hope that that fight actually comes off because me too does, but i i have my reservations we all do yeah every, everybody fans. should like what everybody do you yeah should. all right listen first off we're boxing fans so i mean we're just kind of jaded and we understand the, the belly. two we already know fury's track record as well all right this fight was supposed to have happened already this past year you know and then i understandably why the fight got postponed because fury didn't you know incur injuries that he didn't think he was going to get against Ngannou. But regardless, it's supposed to be in the beginning of 2024. We're supposed to get... Oh, that's his fault. You know, like that, he came fault. in like a slob. Absolutely. That's his fault. Absolutely. You don't want to take anybody seriously and walk in there with a guy like that who has wrecking ball power. That's on you. You want to, you know, so... And, uh, and may I just add one asterisk onto the fucking Fury and Ngannou thing, if I might. If I might. Anybody, I'm sorry, but the heavyweight championship was on the line in that fight. Oh, I no. Know people... Yeah. of him beating um klitschko and keeping in track with that he's at 10 defenses right now 
Even if, even when he came back and he was like a giant blimp when he fought um whoever that guy was, Sefri or something like that in his comeback. Yeah. That was, that's and for Tom the Tom Schwartz and shit. Yes. And when George Foreman beat Crawford Grimsley, Foreman was still lineal champion. All right. Foreman defended that belt against Grimsley. Foreman defended the lineal belt against Lou Savarese. He lost it against Shannon Briggs. All right. Like Oh, Lennon I know that that heats people up so quick. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I absolutely get it. My dad was absolutely livid. Not so much that Shannon Briggs was, was lineal champion, the fact that he thought Foreman won that fight. But, um, but yes, Shannon Briggs is lineal heavyweight champion as long as be, along with being a WBO champ for like a cup of coffee in the mid-2000s. But yes, if you go by like he beat the man who beat the man who beat the man, as I do, as I know you do, as I know some other people on, you know, historians and people on Twitter do as well, um, then yes. Fury has defended all those belts. That title was on the line because of how it was. He, yeah, if Ngannou would have knocked his ass out, would people have said, no, no, Fury's still the champion. He just got this knockout loss. That What? Oh. You, come on. Like, it's... Yeah. I don't know why people kept making that argument. That. I think, unless the ring decide not to sanction it, who the hell knows? Who cares? I don't care if they sanctioned it or not. If, if Ngannou would have fucking won by knockout, I'd be calling him the heavyweight champion. Yeah. You know, a funny thing about Shannon Briggs becoming lineal champion is that a uh, little side note. You remember the ringside catalogs we used to get when all of us were, you know. I still have a couple of them, yeah. Do you remember those belts they used to have back then? Yeah. That kinda, like, they were like the leather, looked like the workout belts, but they just had like the plates with the chains on it and all that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon Briggs was holding one of those ringside belts after he beat Foreman. And it said lineal champ or something like that. I don't know who gave it to him or how, like, whatever. But, like, I still, it was in a KO magazine or one of those things. And it's one of the funniest things I can imagine because, like, who the hell came up with that? <laughs> That's like <laughs> when, I can't remember after what fight it was, but after one of his fights, Sergio Martinez, somebody gave him the crown, but it was, like, the shoddiest, cheapest piece of shit oh, yeah, plastic that crown. Game. I remember that. It was after he knocked out Paul Williams or somebody. Yeah, and and people were just like, okay, this fool's like fighter. Why the fuck is he wearing a crown? And then, like, the next one, they got, like, a legit crown made for him because they heard the criticism and shit. Whole boxing. But, yeah, he gets the shitty crown. And not only that, like, the announcers underplayed his knockout so badly on that one. Remember that? Like, he hits him with the most cracking punch, Paul Williams, the most cracking punch you can imagine. Left hand, uh, right hand, and, and down goes Williams. Oh, left hand. And then they just kind of get quiet. And Dude, that uh, was like... And then you just hear Kellerman in the most monotone voice. Well, if it's not the fight of the year, it was, it was definitely the knockout of the year. Yeah, that was like that like, was what that was like the knockout of the decade, dude. Are yeah, you kidding me? Barely even, you know. And I and I almost feel like that they got talked to afterwards because who was that? Brian Kenny. Probably. Yeah, I, I'm pretty because he started going wild after every type of knockout ever after on every broadcast after he was on that. <laughs> like and when Brian was knocking out a scrub, Brian knocks him out, <laughs> and, and all then- these. Lennox Lewis being fucking like never excited whatsoever ever until the one until uh the Maskev Rockman rematch. It's oh, over, it's over. Like I'm like, whoa, dude, you got a grudge, Lennox. No, that was the best thing I ever heard. He's getting knocked out. That's all it's coming, it's over. Yeah. And Lampley always trying to talk over those guys too. That was like his bad trait. He needed to deliver the poetry, like he had to. 
if you listen closely to the round 12 of, and this is the last thing I'll, I'll say, if you listen to closely to round 12 of Giroff, Tony Giroff, you hear Emmanuel Stewart going absolutely insane. You should just leave him be at that moment because like his commentary was perfect in there. But if you listen close, you hear Lampley still going, ah, he catches another one and then he goes down. And now like, let Stewart just have that because like his, his commentary was perfect for that moment. The emotion yeah, he, he captured, yeah, he captured it. Like he captured he fan it. excitement during those kinds of moments perfectly. Like like fucking Ward Gotti, the first one. Oh god! Oh my god! And you're just sitting there watching it, like, bro, I'm you're me, I'm you. Ah, whereas Lampley's like, we're watching history. This is the and you're like, bro, we don't. But need you're that. like, I didn't like the fact that he had to just keep on going, like. And the thing with that one is that, like, you almost felt because he clearly had a connection with Tony way back in the day, you know, Tony working out after Kronk and sparring guys, whatever. And, like, so you, you felt him get excited when he hit him with that left hook. And then, oh, my God, with the hook, left hook. And, like, you know, and then, wow, oh, James's experience is coming out now. Like, he was clearly, like, remin- like, you know, knowing how great of a fighter Tony is or remembering how great he is, like, working out. Like, he was getting hyped about it. And then just Lampley talking over. Just but, going right, nuts in the game. last minute. Yeah, it was great. So... All right, but back to like that thing. It was, I don't know. Yeah, dude, it was, I don't even remember how we took all that fucking, we somehow went in a line out over there and ended up on foot. But in any case, 2023, it was a really fun year, dude. There was a lot of really bright spots. And it spots. makes me optimistic for what's going to come this year. All I know is that like, I was blessed to work a bunch of fights this year. Hope to work a bunch of fights this uh, this coming year. And um, if we get the same amount of fights or even like close to it that we did in terms of ones that came to fruition that we've been begging for, they were going to have another solid year again. Like we've all been beat up. We're used to that. We're used to just being like used and abused as fans and stuff like that. But I mean, we did have a bright light this year, so hopefully it keeps on shining. You know what I'm saying? Look, we got a, as much as I rag on DAZN for various things and, and as much as they often deserve to be ragged on, if we're being honest, like we had a massive production issue where they lost audio for like rounds at a time during the main event on their last, on their fire. That was, that was my own thing at first. And then before I saw yeah. that, it's like, <laughs> what? And then, yeah, at first I was like, oh shit, my stream's crapping out. And no, they put up a thing and I'm like, that's not the first time that's happened. Long story short, though, again, I don't want to focus on that because I do want to say that regardless of that, DAZN did do some good things and they were involved in some good things in 2023. And they're kind of picking up the baton a little bit where Showtime has dropped it. uh, I mean, not dropped it, but look, the fact of the matter is it got wrenched from Showtime. It didn't, PVC didn't screw anything up. None of that happened. The fact of the matter is that these massive legacy companies, HBO, Showtime, boxing doesn't do anything for them. That's what that's what fans and that you know it's everything to us. You know, so it's tough for fans to understand that it just doesn't move the fucking needle. Nobody cares, even on DAZN. Like generally speaking, you're talking about like fucking Premier League rights and stuff like that on DAZN that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and in some cases billions of dollars whereas you know eddie hearn gets a fucking thing for 500 million dollars over the course of several years on his own and people are like what a fucking genius and you're like no dude look boxing is fucking totally overshadowed in months you know years of boxing is overshadowed in months by just football slash soccer period so it's difficult for people to understand that it doesn't move the needle and that this decision was coming from Showtime. It had nothing to do with PBC, Steven Espinoza, just like HBO decided, dude, 
subscriptions are where it's at and sh- and boxing ain't bringing subscriptions like that same thing for showtime it has nothing to do b- with pbc point is i believe that boxing like i said earlier resilient these companies are going to figure out some way to do some shit i have absolutely no fucking reservation about that we've already seen with amazon other streaming services are probably also going to fucking pick up you know some interest in some of the bigger stars and whatnot so it's all fucking good for me and you know what as much as people trash jake paul He's investing into the future of young fighters by getting involved with USA Boxing, which itself is a fucking awful organization and total shambles. But I hope that he helps with it because that is really the way to invest in the future of boxing is to, you know, uh, make those kinds of local and amateur programs healthy. So there's a lot of stuff to look up, uh, look forward to in 2024 and a lot of stuff that has a lot of potential. And we should probably, you know, spend more time getting behind that than hissing all over what progress we made um it was good dude that being said the showtime business so i mean you know i kind of was just talking about that but showtime is out of boxing as of now uh Mm -hmm. it sucks you know a lot of us has really good memories about boxing but as i was just saying it has nothing to do with boxing dying or anybody having affiliation with showtime killing it or anything like that there's a really rich history, dude. You know what I mean? Going back to the beginning uh, of Showtime, that is. Not the beginning of boxing. We won't go there. But, um, you know, there was obviously a need to develop these kind of closed circuit and pay-per-view type of platforms over time as networks started dropping out, of which is we're familiar about now. You know, uh, platforms dropping out of broadcasting, boxing, and wanting to get away, sponsorship issues, etc., and so that's really where um, HBO, TVKO, and gosh, I can't remember what Showtime's first, like what their company, their pay-per-view arm was called at first. But point is, these two companies stepped up. And one of the main reasons why Showtime was able to gain so much ground during a time when HBO was kicking so much ass was Don King and Mike Tyson. You know, they had a lot to do with that at the time, you know, and that's something that's definitely right up your wheelhouse. Absolutely. So as you can see, I'm wearing actually uh, an original shirt from the very first show Showtime ever put on, which was, you know, I just love the the graphics of it, the fights, simple, easy. And that was the night Marvin Hagler fought John Luis Mugabe in the last one of his career. And Thomas Hearns uh, absolutely decapitated. Um, well, I don't want to use that word. That's not nice because what happened to him in an accident, but like, Knocked out James. He Schumer. got got though, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the black gold got taken yeah. out. I mean, it was one of those. I mean, like those Hearns left hooks to the body, then that right hand to finish him. But like, it's it's interesting to think because Hagler was an HBO fighter through and through for throughout the eighties. All right, featured countless times, all of his title defenses, even the shitty ones against like Bully Oblahimis or um uh what would be another one from that time, Wilfred Scipion. Yeah. You know, Guys like that, yeah. yeah, another one, like the Enterfermo rematch, all those were on HBO. Like, they had the whole Hagler thing. So the fact that he was on Showtime for their first premiere event against a guy like, you know, Mugabe, who was a wrecking ball with an incredible record of all knockouts at that point in a big marquee matchup, that was huge. That's straight out the gate for them, you know what I mean? And it wasn't like they became, like, a, comp- a premier competitor to HBO. There was still a clear difference there, like you just said. Like, HBO still had Don King at that point and he had, you know, everyone else was still aligned with them. So like they still had Mike Tyson and the other heavyweights at that point, 
well, it actually when the first time Showtime um, premiered as a premiered their first fight, HBO was in the midst of their heavyweight tournament, just to give you you know context. So they had them, they had Chavez, they had all the big guys. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard was still working for them. So if he was going to do whatever, like they they had all the premier guys. But like Showtime still for their first years had some pretty significant fights. Like they had this one, Hagler Mugabe ended up becoming an incredible fight. And that was a big show for them for their first one. Um, Donald Curry losing his welterweight championship um, in a massive upset, one of the biggest upsets of the 80s against Lloyd Honeyan. That was on Showtime, you know? And this was their early years. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's funny, too, and somewhat ironic, I guess, the fact that there was a proliferation of mm-hmm. world titles around this time. The, the IBF had just uh, recently become recognized as a major world title. You know, this is something that we're kind of in the midst of going through with the WBO, and people are trying to push the motherfucking IBO into this equation, too, for fuck's sake. But, you know, and, but this proliferation of been around as long as the WBO, bro. Don't hate him. It's the four belt era trademark. And so fucking, you know, this proliferation of titles, though, um, I don't want to like big up the sanctioning bodies, but it did create opportunities for other fighters. And it did uh, kind of, you know, necessities, the, the mother be, being the mother of invention kind of meant that there was this other space where these other fighters needed platforms you know the days of fighters fighting off tv were coming to an end and that just they're at an end at this point you know if you're a world-class fighter you don't fight off tv that's just you don't that's not even a that's a foreign concept at this point but at this point these that was coming to an end and these fighters needed television platforms and didn't have them and so showtime kind of filled that gap they filled that void and that's ex- that's pretty much exactly what happened. But then things started to shift when the star power started to shift. Absolutely. So, I mean, Showtime had some great fights in the late 80s, even though they were still like kind of second banana to HBO, obviously, and other networks who were still involved in boxing at that point. You got to keep in mind, ABC was, ABC was still showing fights. They would still show fights more consistently or not up until the mid-90s. NBC, you know, CBS, like they were... Networks Tuesday night, you know, um, USA, like there was still network boxing on around, right? But uh, Showtime, like I said, they did have some great nights. Like for instance, they they were the ones who aired um, Evander Holyfield, Michael Dokes, which I consider the best fight heavyweight fight of the eighties. Um, Holyfield, Al Stewart, like they had, they were in the Holyfield sweepstakes, for instance, in in the late eighties, and that was a big get for them. You know what I mean? And um, and they were, you know, there was other fights that they aired at that point too. I remember. Uh, Jesus. Mayweather Pazienzo was on what card? No, that wasn't actually no, that wasn't HP. That wasn't Showtime. Um, I take that back. But like they they were airing guys like that, right? But the shift, like you were just about to mention, happens around 1991. Mike Tyson, like I mentioned earlier at that point, was an HBO mainstay. Don King had all of his fighters on HBO. That was a network he was dealing with since the very early 80s. And Larry Holmes and everything like that. Now the focus comes in 1991, and after Mike Tyson knocks out Alex Stewart and Larry Merchant, you know, on air as he as he was tended to do sometimes, come you know made his grapes be known that he thought Stewart wasn't a good opponent, X, Y, and Z, yada yada yada. Said a few things about Tyson and other stuff. They're fed up with him. They had been fed up with him for a few years, and at this point, they're like, okay, they gave HBO an ultimatum. They go, listen, 
either you get rid of Larry Merchant or we're taking our business elsewhere. HBO, to their credit, excuse me, stays loyal to Merchant. And thank God, because look at all the years we got to enjoy him as an analyst, right? He's one of the all-time greats. But King, you know, as he promised, he took his bags elsewhere. And where is that? Across the street to Showtime. And now Showtime is a big player because not only do they get Mike Tyson, they get like all of King's arsenal. And King, at this point, this is the early 90s, he had all of the best fighters in the world basically at his fingertips. So we're talking Terry Norris, who made a name of himself on HBO, finding a number of guys and making a number of appearances. Now he's on Showtime. More like specific, you know, staying there now. Um, you have Julio Cesar Chavez, who is basically the best power for pound fighter on the planet. Now he's going to be on Showtime. Like there's a lot of big guys that HBO lost now and Showtime is going to be able to feature. Yep. Fucking King and his whining about Larry. Pink colored prevaricator. Fucking. <laughs> he was always I, so full of words, isn't he? What's that? I said he was always colorful with his insults and words to people he didn't like. He's crazy. I mean, I, I kind of get it because look, dude, Larry kind of was a hater. There were certain fighters that he did kind of uh, did kind of seem to take a personal dislike to and would go out of his way to needle them. Some sure. of them deserved it. I'm not saying that they didn't, but like he didn't like Bernard Hopkins and he would needle the shit out of Bernard Hopkins, mostly at a certain point in his career because he stuck up for him, at least on the, the Trinidad broadcast. But like he had to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you have no fucking choice because George George Foreman in like round 10 talking about, oh, he's got to be careful. Felix Trinidad's creeping up on him. And Larry's like, what the fuck are you talking about, George? You know, I'll give him that credit. But yeah, like you said, it was like not really much choice. However, there were times when it was like, dude, you're you really got it out for this guy. And he didn't like Tyson. He didn't like Don King. Again, understandably, he didn't like Floyd Mayweather. Again, in some ways, understandably. But it was like, it's not really your job to do what you're doing when you're doing it. And that was why, that's why I kind of understood Don King's complaint at the time. But you also can't go to HBO and be like, get rid of this guy who's like a legacy fucking media guy who worked in Philadelphia for, you know, and that's not going to happen. Same so. with HBO almost from the very beginning. Like it wasn't like Merchant was picked up at some point in the mid eighties and just became, you know, one of those guys. He was on the broadcast from the very, very early jump, you know, like he was actually working the ones with Don Dumphy, like the very early, 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 early broadcast on HBO at the point where HBO was such a, was such a um, new entity in the whole thing that they were airing WWF shows from Madison Square Garden. Like, you know, some of their big house shows like that. They were just kind of picking up whatever they could. And no one thought of them as anything because at that point, network boxing was still the big thing going on. You know what I mean? Like, what was HBO at that point? Who was going to have a subscription to anything when you can just watch any, like, uh, Wide World of Sports or any of the other channels at that point, you know? So, yeah, I see their loyalty as they have with Merchant. And not only that, they would have to do that because what would that show them that they would let a promoter bully them into firing one of their mainstays? Exactly. Yeah. Then that sends the message that all you have to, if you're a promoter, all you have to do is complain about something the broadcaster said and they're gone. Mm -hmm. exactly. And you can't, you know, as a network, you can't set that fucking precedent. That's not, you know, that's not something you could be doing, but like in any case, yeah. Uh, moving forward, dude, into the 1990s, I think a lot of people probably would have, uh, 
they would not have known, you know, especially because like you were talking about, you mentioned on a number of different shows, like people had black boxes and shit like that. So they wouldn't really be paying close attention to like the production quality between sure. HBO and Showtime. That's something you would probably, since you worked in production, you know, pay a little closer attention to. But it seemed like Showtime was willing to shell out the money and the production was good but not as good as HBO. However, there were instances where you could see like, okay, they're shelling out for that fight. So obviously there's some money going through here. And so I was looking, cause I was, I was curious, like how long have they been owned by CBS? Have they been CBS since the beginning? No, I actually didn't even know. They fucking launched in uh, Escondido, which is just North of San Diego and fucking weird. But um, yeah, 10,000 subscribers uh, at first and basically was owned by Viacom. So, yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. But in any case, that's why it's uh, in the early 80s. That's when they started doing 24 hour programming, scheduling and shit like that. And I remember, oh, excuse me. Jeez. I remember um, yeah, it comes with fucking having a massive beard, I guess. Um, I remember like in the early 80s, dude, we used to get like a package, like a cable like package. Uh, because we had cable and my parents used to love movies and shit. So we, we would get like HBO Cinemax and Showtime and shit like that. But at least for us, like Showtime was like the throwaway one. Nobody watched the Showtime because all the good movies were on HBO and Cinemax and shit. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, and it's, it's still kind of that way to be honest, <laughs> but, Showtime, but Showtime picked up the fucking, you know, ran with the ball with the boxing the last few years for sure. It was it was interesting the fact that like all right when in the early 90s so showtime that's so after king um becomes the main provider of like you know fights and content for showtime that's when i become a fan i think around the same time that's when you did and many of us on around the same age i think kind of come of age the same thing right like we all became fans around that same time might have been different era you know various years or whatever it is but we all became of age around the don king era of showtime and yeah, it was, you know, right out the gates, like, there was so many memories I could think of that I was just kind of like, wow, you know, that I would, like, my first um, experiences with Julio Cesar Chavez was because of Showtime. My first experiences with Hector Camacho was because of Showtime. Uh, first learning about Felix Trinidad because of Showtime, you know what I mean? Um, the, the Mike Tyson debacle of everything when he comes out of jail and everything like that was because of Showtime. But, like, it was, it was one of those things that, like, you know, I had a lot of memories as a kid because there was just it was I knew like H for instance like I, HBO was the first one I watched and I was already like used to them even their pay-per-views and like knowing how they had their pre-packaged everything like that but then like watching Showtime I just knew there was an alternative I wasn't really sure what they were at first but like I started distinguishing like the announcers okay that's the HBO guys these are the Showtime guys like and like just knowing what I was watching and all that. But like there was so many memories of myself, for instance, that like during that era where I would just be like, holy shit, man, like this is like near and dear for me. For instance, like the first time I ever watched Tommy Herms was because of Showtime. And that was during that time when he was on his comeback and just making random appearances on Don King undercards buried and just blasting dudes. I think uh, I forgot the guy that he fought. Jesus, off the top of my head, it wasn't it wasn't Andrew Mater because that was the top ranked show, but um something Ward or something like that. But anyways, Tommy scored a first round knockout, and that was the first time my dad ever got like excited 
I remember like seeing him like super excited before a fight and he was like, oh, yo, you need to watch this with me like really quick. You know, this is Thomas Herms. I was like, who's that? And he was like, he knocks everybody out when he hits them the first time with the right hand. When he hit the guy with the right hand, the guy turned spaghetti. Like that was like, holy shit, my dad's right. It's like, this is incredible, you know? And it, it, it just created a lot of great memories. You know what I mean? Like a lot of my favorite fighters were cultivated from there. Like Terry Norris, for instance, um, he became one of my all time favorites. And I watched him from watching stuff on Showtime, but that being said, you know, we got to keep her in perspective. That was an interesting, de- that was an interesting error because there was so many all-time great fighters and King is being lauded over the years and rightfully so to a degree about putting all these stacked pay-per-views that everyone like m- remembers and um, reminisces about, right? And so like, there's a few of them that I can get on. Like, for instance, you can talk about like the Mike Tyson, Razor Roddick ones. You know, one of them had i think maurice blocker simon brown as the main chief undercard the other one was like fucking jeff fennick against azuma nelson those are incredible fights on amongst themselves that in this day and age would probably um be their own pay-per-view main event especially in this era but they were just the undercard of like a tyson you know the tyson fight that's that's pretty awesome you know what i mean and then you look at revenge of the rematches which on paper is one of the most stacked and most incredible cards in boxing history how it actually unfolded is another story, but like on paper, it's an incredible thing. But then you get to actually what he was providing on Showtime during that era too. And you're just kind of like, and that's how I look at it. Like initially as a kid, I looked at everything like rose cuddled glasses. I was like, man, you know, I'm watching Showtime every other weekend and I'm seeing blah, 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 blah. And then like, I become an adult and I haven't seen a lot of these fights in years. I start looking back and I was like, man, a lot of this shit that he was actually providing it shows why you shouldn't have just a central promoter as a, as the network guy, because a lot of that stuff was actual ass. <laughs> yeah. Cause then you're obligated to allow this promoter to fucking, you know, showcase this dude showcase some fighter against some other total tomato can. It, that's just, and then he got away with it often. <laughs> Unfortunately he did, but there were a lot of other things too, that Showtime managed to do. Like, I mean, we'll get into the kind of later years uh but like yeah. you said Tyson Ruddock that was those fights i think were both on hp or uh, both on showtime i mean they both on showtime yep yeah dude like there've there've been a number of fights over the Holyfield Douglas definitely showtime oh, showtime yeah i mean Julio Cesar Chavez a bunch just about all of his fights after a certain point were on showtime if you saw um if you saw uh uh, Finito Lopez at all fight live. It was almost certainly on Showtime, basically, you know, and uh, after a certain point, Floyd Mayweather switched to Showtime, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there was a lot of stuff that they managed to do. Well, you know, the other thing too, I'll say about Showtime, I forgot to even mention this, is that like, they were the first ones that were featuring the European guys that I had never seen, only read about in magazines. I'll give Showtime credit for that too. You have to give them credit for that. So in like the mid nineties, you know, you want to hear about like Nigel Ben or Chris Eubank or um, uh, Steve Collins and Hamed. Cause they were the first yeah, ones. Hamed, to yeah. I was going to say Hamed was on there at first. Yeah. He was on there first. Like all these type of guys that like you only read about in magazines. And again, this is the pre YouTube era. So it wasn't like you can just Google them and find footage. Um, Showtime was the first one to feature them. Well, I mean, not not um not Nigel Ben. He was already you know on ABC and made his America excursion in the early '90s. But like a lot of these guys that you had never really seen. Too ben much. McClellan, that was on Showtime. 
I was on Showtime. Yeah, I'm talking about like Nigel Ben, like in 1990 against yeah, Iron yeah, yeah. Like, Yes, a lot of those the mid 90s when they were going through those things, like you had the second Ben Eubank fight, which was massive, massive, massive in, in the UK, like one of the biggest fights you can uh, in their history at that point. That was on Showtime. Um, like you said, Ben McClellan. I watched that with my dad. That was on Showtime. Um, Steve Collins when he finally beat uh, Chris Eubank. He was featured on Showtime. Then you had like other, just a lot of those guys that you normally would not see. They were always featured on there, whether it was like a connection with Don King or whatever it may be. But like, it was interesting to, in a sense, to watch that. I was just kind of like, holy shit, you know, this is a chance for me to see a guy that I normally wouldn't be able to see. And HBO wasn't the type of uh, network that featured those guys. Like at that point, HBO was starting to give out those contracts where they were just featuring their, you know, their main performers or like networks that they were kind of dealing with, whether it was like main events or top rank, who was being a major content provider for them and others like that. So Showtime was a good alternative if you wanted to see like a lot of guys overseas or like you said, like, you know, the lower weight guys that Don King might have had controlled or like fighters that you normally wouldn't be able to see. Like Ricardo Lopez was in the top 10 of everybody's pound for pound list for the majority of the 90s. And like you said, the only time you were going to watch him was on Showtime. Even if they weren't competitive fights, and 99% of the time they wasn't because he was just beating up some scrub from wherever in the straw rate waitings. Yeah. And ratings. the fact that he didn't unify is a pretty big knock too, but nonetheless. Yeah, you know, and that's mind-boggling too when you really think about it because like the only time he did, which was on a Showtime pay-per-view, um, was when he knocked out uh, Alex Sanchez. And I don't even know if Sanchez was still the WBO champion at that point, but that was the only time he did that. And then when he moves up to 108 and then he beats up uh, Sorvorapin and he beats up Zolani Patello and everyone else, you kind of think to yourself, like, you know, he could have done this at straw weight and just whooped all these guys initially. And the only one he did, like, is Alex Sanchez and then um, Rosendo Alvarez, which, again, was on, a, on another Showtime pay-per-view. And that was a compelling series that they were able to air. But, like... Showtime was good for airing little guys before HBO did because HBO got into it with boxing after dark. They were really good at airing overseas guys during those mid 90s times and like just airing guys that you normally wouldn't be able to see. You know, the Hamed stuff, for instance, he was more of a surprise when he first came on. You know, I've mentioned this on the show before, but like that card initially when he when he fought Daniel Alisea, he wasn't supposed to be the main event of that card. The main event of that card was supposed to be Terry Norris against Jose, uh, Jose, um, uh, what's his name? Vasquez. Who was the who, Julio, Julio Cesar, Cesar Vasquez. Vasquez? Yeah, Julio Cesar Vasquez. That was supposed to be the main event, unification of the junior middleweight crowd, which would have been a hell of a fight in itself. But I don't. I think Norris caught the flu or whatever may have happened, and the fight fell apart immediately. Like you know, within forty, uh, within that week, it fell apart, right? And I didn't know about that. I just kind of watched it. And then when it came on, the when I turned on the TV that night to watch Showtime, thinking I was going to watch that fight and mentioned that. And it said, instead, they're going to show Nassim Hamed. I wasn't expecting that. Probably anyone else that was watching that night wasn't expecting me either. And we got our first glimpse of, you know, what would become with him. He got dropped. He did his whole shtick when he walked, came to the ring, scored a spectacular knockout where he laid Alisea completely out. You know, it was incredible. And look at the undercard of that fight too. So, I mean can't remember who it was i want to say it was probably frank warren but i know i i don't know who it was who was promoting hamed at the time but i know for certain well, that, i think it was warren 
it was right around that time and in the years after that was when Showtime really got into business with Frank Warren or, you know, did more business with Frank Warren because he was the one who was looking after Ricky Hatton. You know, he had some sort of involvement with Joe Calzaghe, um, you know, and, and a number of those fighters who we otherwise would not have seen in like the late 90s and stuff like that. Those yep. are, you know, fighters that we were exposed to. And for for a lot of American fans, they didn't want to be. A lot of them were fucking endlessly whining about it. Dude, some American fight fans just cannot handle British boxing. Like, they just hate it. Like, they they hate it. It's fine. Yeah. But in any case, uh, no, Showtime. I mean, some of those fighters were kind of rough to watch in the late yeah, 90s. I'm not going to lie. Some of them weren't good. You know, I, what was one that I can call recall off the top of my head? Calzage versus Will McIntyre. Shit was Ooh. bad. That was, that was bad. on my birthday. Because that was the main the main event was Mike Tyson against what was that blob Brian Nielsen yeah Brian Brian Nielsen oh god that was a bad card dude yeah oh a yeah bad card but well I mean, I mean all right I got one for you you ready for this one this was like ninety seven ninety eight or something like that um, Fabrice Tioso against Terry Ray Terry Ray all right if yeah put any in either of the Tioso if you just like if you go, if just go on box rec and look at his record he's one of those middling cruiserweight heavyweights of like the mid 90s from I don't know where he was from but he, he wasn't good and the fact that he got a title shot I don't know how but he got fucking in like 40 seconds and then you, the for showtime because they had to like kill time not only did they have to interview Tioso, they had to interview Terry Ray and like show like the knockout over and over to him why he got blasted when Angelo walk Dundee. us through this and you're like, oh shit, yeah, yeah that that was definitely one aspect of Showtime broadcast that I was not super enthused about. Bobby Chez, not a massive fan, as anybody who listens to Bryn and I fucking talk knows, we're not a big fan of Bobby Chez, but um, yeah, dude. Either of the fucking Tiozzo brothers, like get get them the fuck off. Of them. Was, but again, though, it still served as like one of those alternatives back then that you were like, wow. I, I mean, I'm talking about during the Don King era, he was still and because Frank, I wasn't just cl- clearly King because at this point, Frank Warren, like you said, was promoting cards, and that's how you're able to see these UK guys being featured. And um, it was it was a good alternative, all right, because like we knew at HBO, all right, you're gonna watch James Tony before he kind of fell apart. Then it became Roy Jones, um, George Foreman, uh, Riddick Bowl, Holyfield. You know, like you knew what you were getting with HBO and those premier guys, stuff like that, De La Hoya and others. But then with Showtime, you knew now, okay, I'm gonna watch. I'm if I'm gonna watch Showtime tonight, we're gonna see Trinidad. You're gonna see Ricardo Lopez. You're gonna see like there was just like this whole like base of who's across the street and stuff like that, you know. And then when Tyson came back in the mid '90s, um. It was an exciting moment, too, because, you know, he signed with King immediately when he came out. And then he was being featured again on Showtime, you know what I mean? Showtime at that point, to give them credit, like, they were the ones who kind of controlled the heavyweight division. Like, yeah, George Foreman was the was the lineal champion, but Showtime had the stars. In, in its own weird way, like, you know, Bo and Holyfield were deteriorating each other, right? And we, we didn't really know what was going on with that. George Foreman was just middling around and struggling with guys like Axel Schultz. Mike Tyson was coming out of prison now and blasting out. Um, yeah, obviously we can look at that now and be like, oh, God, that was awful. But at the time, people were like, that's what we want to see. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got Showtime now, though, because they have the momentum during this era where because you got Tyson coming out. He blasts out Frank Bruno and then he slaps around, you know, Bruce Selden and others and stuff like that. 
and now he's like the and now he's become a champion even though he's not lineal champion he's look he's the most uh most popular fighter on the planet and he's back and like all these guys are petrified of him and yada 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 and it's like and then when he loses the holy field even then that's still big big business for showtime because like that was one of the biggest upsets you can imagine now they could parlay that and rematch and everything like they they were doing well for themselves during that point and again this is still just during a different era like they're doing very well for themselves but you still i at me because like i still looked at them as like you know the b level not b but like you know one step like below where hbo was but like they had massive success during that era they really really did but with all the, you know, big pay-per-views that they were putting on and stuff like that, man, there was a lot of dreck in there. And they needed a change because you can't just have one person just dominating the whole scene or even a couple of people doing that for that matter. Like, you just, you know, there was need for a change. And so, like, by the late 90s, when Tyson was finally fizzling out, Holyfield was, like, struggling with guys like John Ruiz and other things was happening over there. Yeah, they were still doing things, but, like, HBO had clearly proven themselves to be, like, the elite now at this point. They needed a change. And the guy in charge at that point who had been in charge of Showtime for a very long time, a brilliant mind by the name of Jay Larkin, um, knew that they needed to do a new avenue. And that's when they started a new era, which was when they wouldn't align themselves with any promoters. What was it? Like best fights and best... Fights, not fighters. Yeah. That's what... that Yeah, that was the the slogan or like the business slogan or whatever. I don't think it was the, the official, but like... um. But yeah, well, there's a little bit of context, and some of that was, and I know a lot of people really remember Roy Jones fondly, and that's cool, but there was, on the business side, he did some damage, um, and well, some might say that he did some good, but he did some damage because HBO had given Roy Jones this exclusive contract. And they had basically put in in this contract. Well, you know, basically whoever you fight, you're you're as long as you're fighting on the HBO network. And also the other part of that was that Roy was on contract as a commentator on HBO since the '90s too. And so Roy would commentate on a number of these HBO cards, and then he was also on contract as an HBO fighter. And so then basically they gave him these minimum regardless of whoever he was fighting and he was playing the the uh, mandatory game where he had all of these belts and he was just fighting the mandatories of the belts. And so it wound up uh, that HBO televised some pretty shitty Roy Jones Jr. fights in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the nature of his contract being an HBO fighter basically forced both HBO and Showtime to reassess the contracts that they were giving to fighters and promoters because they were kind of being taken advantage of in that regard. Now, it's not kind of fair to totally see it that way because there were a lot of fighters who were still getting shit on in the meanwhile, but it was just, you know, these handful of fighters who were benefiting from these kinds of deals. And so Showtime, I think, saw that and was like, all right, look, you know, the best thing we could do is put on good fights and the fights that people want and not necessarily latch on to one fighter, but be willing to kind of work on a fight-to-fight basis with fighters. And I, that's obviously not what happened with everybody because there did wind up being Showtime fighters too. But nonetheless, it did it did change. It did kind of shift a little bit. And that also led to us seeing in the early 2000s, like for instance, 
even though Don King was involved with most of them, if not all of them, we saw a really good cruiserweight round robin, mostly on Showtime in the early 2000s that nobody ever really talks about or remembers. But there was some fucking brilliant shit in there, bro. Fucking Wayne Braithwaite, big truck. The guy was scary as fuck. Jean-Marc Mormack, fucking O'Neill Bell, who was on ESPN2 a bunch of times and then went to Showtime. Uh, you know, there were a number of really good Dale Brown, who wasn't like elite elite, but among, you know, the contenders. And there were a number of really, well, really good. Yeah, dude. Bro, there was some fucking really good uh, cruiserweights during that time who participated in this kind of Showtime cruiserweight tournament. They did the Super Six. They did the Bantamweight tournament. Uh, I mean, you know, they've done a number of okay. things where HBO wouldn't really do this kind of stuff. The most they did was the Don King middleweight tournament. And that was not quite the same thing. Absolutely. And and also, too, um, Showbox. That's the huge thing. Oh, yeah. But I didn't, we haven't even brought that up yet. Yeah. Yeah, not even yet. That's that's a story. That's a whole episode on unto itself when you really think about it's it. It's worth its weight in gold, um, bro. Yeah. You know, that premiered in what? 2001? 2000, 2001, around then. Something like that. Yeah, I think 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And... No one really knew what that was going to be when it first premiered. Like, you know what I mean? We just knew it was going to be like a, a proven ground type show. And HBO kind of tried to do the same thing with KO Nation, KO except, Nation they, yeah. except they were already featuring like world champions and stuff like that. Like, you know, like more low profile ones. But like it was that show was kind of meh, just because of the context of how they tried to present it. You know, there was no frills was with try hard shit, man. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There was no frills with Showbox. There was no like, you know, Ed Lever hosting it. There was no like, you know, custom music coming out and yeah, all that type of shit. It was like young prospects looking to try to make a name for themselves. And they were trying to make it on Showtime Championship Boxing or wherever their careers were gonna take them. And they were hungry as fuck and it 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 ended up being like one of their biggest legacies and one of the you know biggest booms that they could have imagined because look how much it produced for them, you know that became like their um their golden era for me for instance I mean like for this after once after the nineties kind of ended for them you know what I mean that's when they really started flourishing in terms of like and it still took a few years don't get me wrong like every not everything just kind of happens at once and all of a sudden boom you know you're the top banana like. It took a number of years for them. And I'll give you an example. Like one thing they used to do was mind boggling to me when I was younger is that if HBO was showing a massive pay-per-view, Showtime would counter program them with one of their shows. And I would be like, who is watching? Like, for instance, I don't remember who they were counter program. Like what they now you can watch both at once, but then you couldn't. So it was like, what the fuck are you doing? It made no sense to me. For instance, I don't know what the major pay-per-view show was, but I remember that they Showtime counter-programmed them with Joel Casamayor against Edwin Santana. <laughs> like, why? You know? <laughs> and I don't understand that. Because no one's going to watch that. Who the fuck is going to watch that when... I don't remember who was fighting, but I remember it, was a, it had to have been a huge fight going on there. People, Everyone's eyes are going to be on that. More or less. And... I don't know. It, it was interesting, but like, it, it you know, slowly things were like going for them though. Like, and there it was during this point where I would assume that like you were you know making appearances ringside for a lot of these Showtime shows in the mid two thousands. But they were bringing a lot of like cool, you know, the Showtime show was like flourishing at this point. So like the early days, like you said, they were showing guys like Leo Dorin who would become champion soon after. Yeah, they uh, really invested in the lightweight division around that time. Yeah. 
Ricky Hatton um, against the corpse of Freddie uh, Freddie Pendleton was one of the early oh, shows yeah. out there. I, uh, I think um, future PPC mainstay Louis Colazzo. I think he suffered his first L on um, on Showbox. You had uh, Kermit Cintron was one of the early guys on that show. Like there was a lot of guys that ended up you know making appearances early, early on that ended up becoming world champions. I forgot you know Farhood did the. Um, did the historical thing the other day and he dropped all the the numbers and all that but like it it was a proven ground you know what i mean and like from there so you had showbox that became consistent because like the ratings were good for it stuff like that and then early 2000s again was still kind of weird like they were featuring uk fighters but i met at this point i'd gone to hbo and like all the premier guys have gone over there so like now late at night sometimes you'd have to watch like a scott harrison fight the money was shifting like a lot right around this time like hbo i think had started like throwing way more money i i can't say that for certain i'd have to look but that's what it seems like it seemed like hbo started kind of up in the ante a little bit it was it the was, stars anyway yeah they were it was it was different like you know what i mean but they were still you know it was like a transition period because Larkin would pick these fights up and some of them would be good, but some of them would be absolute shite. You know, like on paper, Kelvin Davis against um who was that heavy Ezra Sellers for a vacant cruiserweight title, because both of them are bangers. Looks like it would be a crazy fight on paper. Instead it just became like a thrashing kind of like a ugh, you know. But that would be like the main event of showtime, and you kind of like really. But things got a little bit better. By the time like, you know, 2006, seven, eight starts rolling around, and like you said, you know, uh, the Bantamweight tournament starts coming in. You got guys like Corrales, Castillo, uh, Corrales is starting to be featured yeah, now. the whole lightweight round robin over there. Yeah, and all that type of stuff. So you were around during that time, Pat. You were very uh, heavily in the game, and I think you were writing at that point too. So what was going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, well, oh, man, I... <laughs> God, it almost like gives me PTSD a little bit, but Gary Shaw got in on that fucking shit. Unfortunately, at that yeah, time, it, at that time, it seemed like a good thing, like you know, because Gary Shaw had a lot of involvement as a promoter with Showtime and got in pretty cozy. What you know, what, how else would he have been able to head up a fucking MMA organization that Showtime got involved? You know, see and have his that? son have his son be the commentator for how it. The fuck? You know what I'm like there is no other ex of course he got in good with Showtime because there's no other explanation as to why they would let a total fucking moron like that head up this he's a total <laughs> idiot bro everybody knows that every single person ever dealt with it will fucking back that shit up I just got crucified at the time for saying it to his fucking face but in any case long story short yeah dude at the time it seemed like a good thing because he did have connections. He honestly did. And he still had inroads to a lot of other promoters and other fighters. And he had control of some pretty good fighters or at least some promotional fucking involvement with some pretty good fighters. And that also led to, like I said, you know, this lightweight round Robin on uh, Showtime, you know, actually it was kind of more 130 to 135 because Asselino Freitas, Casamayor, fucking you know those guys wound up uh right around that time and as soon as they're 130 to 135 move up with corrales castillo there are other dudes who were uh, juan lescano um a bunch of other fighters right around this time who were uh, uh julio diaz you know a bunch of other fighters right around this time who were right around lightweight that showtime you know they very intelligently hopefully not luckily hopefully there was some foresight and it was throwing money at these fighters and had these 
massive and largely entertaining hardcore fight, you know, fight fan type of fights on their network. And that really proved to be a massive boon coupled with Showbox uh, uh, seeming to get a little bit more play and more more important and whatnot they were having showbox on on a thursday which was kind of an off day for boxing but made kind of its own you know little on Thursdays? i know for a little bit it was yeah for a bit for a bit showtime or showbox was on a thursday and then i think they moved it to a friday for a bit and then anyway like for a while that was crazy dude because member espn would switch the days so there would be tuesday night fights fucking sometimes wednesday night fights friday night fights there'd be showtime on a fucking thursday you know this is wild shit and then for a while abc tried to do it on sunday mornings remember for a little bit they had the little budweiser series that shit was awesome anyway there were some fucking bomb fights on that i thought they were going to continue that and they didn't that shit was sad but in any case um yeah this was all right around the same time too this was all kind of busting right around the same time where it seemed like uh um boxing was kind of blowing up and also another aspect of this was the internet dude the internet was changing a lot um and one thing i'll say for showtime too that hbo was not doing whatsoever you might remember this it might have been slightly before your time but you might remember it um showtime was packaging dvds and other things briefly of their fights to to sell oh shit sorry alarm my bad turned off Showtime was packaging, like, for instance, they had, I still have it somewhere, a DVD of uh, Perales Castillo with a whole bunch of other fights on it that they were just giving out for free at a fight. And then they also on their, on, I think it was their website, were briefly selling DVDs of a handful of their fights, which I was like blown away because I was like, dude, HBO should have been doing this fucking decades ago and never did. And I thought that that was the start they were going to do it, but I think without getting into too much shit, the the distribution and the packaging of that kind of shit like costs a ton of money and it's just not worth it. But I thought it was the coolest fucking shit at the time. And so point being, Showtime was far more dialed into the technological advancements of what was going on in boxing than HBO, period. HBO, it was like they were old school and business and classy and wearing suits and they had fucking internet. What the fuck is the internet? Whereas Showtime was like, send us your poll. We want to know who you think won with the fucking thing. And then, you know, visit show show.com. And HBO was like, we got to mention fucking websites now. And so they clearly seemed far more into what was happening and kind of foresight in, in boxing and among fans than HBO was. It was just that HBO had the better production, the better packaging, the better, you know, everything. So that really kind of tilted it. But in those mid 2000s, dude, it was cool. There seemed like there was a lot of really cool stuff coming in. You know, to be fair, there was. Yeah, I mean, well, they ended up airing one of the greatest fights of all time, if not, you know, the greatest, well, definitely most people would consider the greatest fight of the century so far in Corrales. I I was thinking about that. If you go down like the the greatest fights of the last thirty five years, yeah. a lot of them happened on Showtime. They really did, man. It's it's pretty incredible. They had a they had a long lasting legacy, which I'm about to bring up too. And I'm going to ask you like you know your favorite memories and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But for me, like you know, with Showtime, I'll always have fond memories because you know besides like watching it on TV and stuff like that, I was blessed enough to um 
I was going to ask you about this, but yeah, please. I, I don't <laughs> I was know. Go into my, detail. Yeah, my first my first job out of college was uh, was with Showtime. You know, I got hired as a PA to be there for like six months or whatever it was. A lot of you motherfuckers watching and listening don't know this, bro. Eris has been in the game. <laughs> yeah, so this was back in 2007. And it's like, you know, I was went to college in Maine and I reached out to Steve Farhood before I graduated. I was like, hey, Steve, you know, you met me at the Hall of Fame, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you asked me when I was going to graduate um, to reach out to you. So I am. Um, hope all is well. If you got something out there, let me know. And he just happened to be like, hey, you know, we actually kind of do. You want to come out here a few weeks for an interview? I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> so I was kidding. I didn't know you were. Yeah. Like I, I told like a couple of professors, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be out for a couple of days. We're going to New York. And they all just like, yeah, that's fucking awesome. Went out there, met with the people and stuff like that, ended up getting the gig. And so I moved out there and um, it, it was one of those, like, the thing about that is that, like, I never thought to myself back then as a kid that, like, I would be able to um, see a guy like, by this time, Bobby Ches wasn't working there anymore, but I met Steve Albert, like, you know, I met all the other guys and stuff like that and seeing their library, how everything worked out, it was it was pretty incredible, you know, and this was during, um, during like the uh, Vasquez Marquez trilogy, this was like during that whole era, you know. So like I was like working on editing and helping these guys like do all that type of stuff. And when it ended, you know, the fight that I got to the first um, fight I got to do was um, Sam Peter against uh, what's his face, Jamil McCline. <laughs> and that was a really good fight in itself. All right, like you know, much better than anyone anticipated. But it's the stuff that came before that that I'll always remember. Um, for instance, that that was the night that Madison Square Garden was going to retire the ring, the famous ring that had been the ring for all those countless legendary fights from Ali and Frazier and Lewis. Everybody had been in that ring at some point in time and fought in that absolute ring, right? Then it was going to be retired and get sent to the Hall of Fame where it currently stands today. And they had a ceremony like a, f- a couple of weeks before the King card. And they had a lot of guys that have since passed away all show up for it. All the guys that, you know, that graced Madison Square Garden at that point. Joe Frazier was there. Uh, Joey Giardello, who could barely move. He was there. Like, um, a lot of heavyweights, a lot of famous heavyweights and just famous fighters had shown up at that, you know, showing up to that part. And it was really cool for them all sitting there and, like, I was running around trying to get coached for them or like trying to like, you know, usher these people here and stuff like that. Basically just being the person I was supposed to be in. Like I'm a dude that's only a couple of months out of college and here I am running around Joe Frazier and all these other legends trying to usher them and help them out and do this and that. And try. it was like mind blowing to me. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely mind blowing. But that ended. But, you know, after that ends and then, you know, I don't really think much of it after for a couple of years, but then I start, you know, working for CompuBox. And initially CompuBox people don't know this, we weren't doing Showtime shows for the first few years. Like, when Showtime ever had stats, that was either somebody else or whatever it was. Like, we didn't work with Showtime until around, like, the Mayweather era. But once we started working with them, that's when I started working with them directly, too, and started traveling and working with these guys, you know, all the time. And I was blessed enough to be with Lee Groves for the majority of these trips. And we would go everywhere from almost all the Showbox trips to like Canada half the time to work at Donna Stevenson fights or this one or that one. Um, I was ringside for the um, main event of the Super Six uh, with Warden and Froch. 
I saw Wilder, this one, that one. You can imagine I was there for a ton of fights for Showtime. And the thing I could say that I used to love about them and what made me so like feel special with them is that those guys made you feel like a part of the crew. You know, they weren't kind of standoffish. They weren't like, you know, stuck up or anything or made you feel like, you know, you're nothing like that. Like in, all those in a guys, stark comparison to HBO. Yes, absolutely. I can say that with no qualms now. Absolutely. They made you feel like you were a part of them and you're a part of their family and they wanted fucking you dickheads. And it was like, you know, for instance, like with the Showbox crew. Raul Marquez and I are really close. Like, I love Raul. He's mad cool. We'll sit there and tell you stories all the time. And it's just very engaging and happy and just a very happy-go-lucky guy. And if you mention him on Twitter, even if it was four years ago, he'll retweet it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Barry Tompkins. I grew up watching Tompkins, not on HBO. I was too young for that. I ain't going to say that. But, like, watching his videos, those ones he used to narrate for HBO Sports, the boxing ones, right? I had a couple of those on VHS that, like, an uncle or someone gave me. And used to watch those over and over. Never in my life did I think I'd be working ringside with him, you know, doing the doing showbox shows and other stuff like that. And he being the most gracious and humble guy you can imagine. And if you want to talk about an HBO show from the early 80s that he commentated, would sit there with you for a half an hour and break it down and talk about what he was feeling. You know, that was cool. And then my favorite, obviously, was Steve Barhood, because me and Steve go way, way back over the years. But what I'll always just love and always appreciated was that me and Steve. And Lee Groves would sit there before shows would start, whether it was HBO, uh, not HBO, Showtime Championship Boxing or Showbox. And when Steve, you know how he always do his his um historic stuff before a show? If me and Lee were working, he would sit with us for at least a half an hour, 45 minutes and like go over and we would all have like a little, um you know, brain session just going over everything about you know history and giving ideas and thoughts and all that. And he would use our, and he would use our quotes and use our shit. And he would even say, he was like, I can't mention you on air, but just know, like, you know, I appreciate all the feedback that you're giving me. And then that was enough for me to know that, like, a guy like him respected me enough that he's going to use me, whatever I would, you know, these things, these stats, and know that I gave him a couple of those. Well, Sorry if, he, if he mentions you on air, then all of a sudden it's like you got your your official role changes and you got to get paid more. Like, yeah, <laughs> by union rules. And I'm not even kidding. So, like, he probably, he's probably legit about that. But I mean, like, it was just cool to, in the fact that, like, I was able to to do that. You know what I mean? Like, it was we it was a camaraderie, it, and it was really nice. And I just love that shit for sure, dude. Like, I I'm uh, even though I look back at it, like my own experience, like I'm conflicted about a number of things because I was, you know, I had a lot of problems at the time. But without going into that stuff, I'm really grateful about a lot of the experiences I had. And likewise, dude, you had a lot of really unique experiences not everybody gets to fucking do that shit and 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 also you have to think about it like this too a lot of the people who work production the zone whatever they're not even boxing they don't even like the fights you know they're not boxing people or life get the fuck out of here thumbs up <laughs> life, the, you know, what the fuck is this shit yeah they're not they're not a uh, lifelong boxing fans who have like you know they might have gotten into fucking doing production on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but lucked out and knew somebody in boxing. They're people who just like fell into this job because they're just production people. Nothing against them, but like they're not pining for that job specifically. Whereas you, you're a lifelong fucking boxing fan and you got to do, 
you know, something of a dream job, like have get paid to be involved in boxing. That's something literally that almost every fucking fan slash media person now wants and fucking lusts for, you know what I'm saying? So we're both really fortunate in that regard. Absolutely, man. I don't take any of that shit for granted whatsoever. Like, you know, I have fond memories of work at Showtime, HBO for that matter, ESPN shows, NBC. Like I've, I've worked a lot of shows and I've been blessed to like seen a lot of great fights, a lot of great fighters and just been around, you know, a lot of important people. But it's like the fondest memories are with Showtime just for a number of reasons. Like they just really had that camaraderie that made you just feel involved. And when afterwards we all go in the back of the production truck and go eat pizza or whatever they were serving that day, like we just eating that amongst ourselves, you know what I mean? And just talking and hanging out. And it was just cool. Oh man, it was just a cool moment. Like I miss sitting next to Steve and like during while he's scoring the fights like live during the product you know on the on the show he'll be looking at the stats because i had to like write them down and like run notes on stuff like that and he would just kind of look at me and nod and go like bottom of and like like i mean those type of guys made you feel like you were contributing to the show you know what i mean like it really made you feel like you were like okay we're all a team yeah. here we're all contributing and doing this type of shit together you know what i mean like and not to give up like too much personal shit that you and i have talked about but also you know, uh, boxing is a very institutional, like, sport. And so a lot of the people who are in boxing now have been in boxing a long time, and they'll fucking let you know it. They'll, mm -hmm. They're quick as fuck to tell you. And that's something both you and I have experienced because we started getting into it at a fairly young age. And people yeah. will remind you that you got into it, you know, that you're young or that you're younger than them or haven't done it as long as long as them, whatever. And so, you know, that's something that's, that makes you feel good about like, you know, the Showtime crew or whatever, is it never, any of those guys that I've ever met, and I'm not necessarily, I've never been close to any of them. So I'm not like you, but like, you know, I, I've never felt like that with any of them where got talked down to, or like kind of felt like, you know, what are you doing here type sure, shit? Sure. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the HBO people and even some of the ESPN people were like that, dude, they made me feel like shit that I even just wanted to participate and that's that's not a good feeling. yeah they pull rank on you they'll pull rank on you and make you think and you're kind of like wait wait yeah it's not a good feeling and it's like because i'm younger than you and so i can't even imagine what the you know how that extends to frankly people of color women you know people with any sort of disability or whatever i can't even imagine how they get discriminated against or treated and it's it's pretty awful but point being circling back to what you said i never experienced that with any of the showtime people dude they were always welcoming uh, a lot of those people, even on social media, are like warm and engaging and shit like that. They're not sticking their nose up or like being dickheads, pulling rank, like you said. They don't do that. And so that's, you know, that's that is a, an energy that a lot of the Showtime crew brought to boxing for most of the fucking time that it was around. Yeah. And I hope a lot of those people that were involved with the sport, you know, back then, all the production people and stuff like that, like I felt the same way for the HBO crew. That, you know, they still land on their feet and they can find whatever support that they can get, whether it's, you know, in their new endeavor with uh, Amazon or whatever it may be like, you know, they're incredible workers, you know what I mean? And like the announcers, like guys like Bernstein who have been, Bernstein's been around for so long, bro. Yeah, dude. You really think about it like. People called Leela Cicero. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's always looked kind of like older than what he was, <laughs> like, um, it's the mustache. Yeah, back know. when he had the Doctor Strange look going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, 
Bernstein's really been around since like the very beginning of the ESPN. And well, ESPN became a thing at what, like 1978, 79? Yeah, it was like 79 or something like that. Yeah. And he was, he's been there since then. Like he's been commentating for God he's knows. seen a lot of shit. Yes. He's, you know, Tompkins, another guy that's been around. I mean, Jesus, he was one of the, the, I don't think he was the original first announcer for HBO, but like he came in around the very early eighties, you know, and it was the iconic voice for so many legendary uh, fights you can imagine from the eighties up until like the very late eighties. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I don't, you know, whether they want to, I don't, I know, I know Bernstein's trying to bounce back and he can still commentate and still go wherever he needs to be and stuff like that. Tompkins, I'm not sure if he still would be willing to, I'm sure he would. Um, yeah, I hope all these guys get Raul, Raul Marquez, who oh, he's, he's a fantastic commentator. He really is. He's and a one great of my, translator too. Yeah. Him and Roy Jones are probably my two favorites when it comes to like fighters who became broadcasters. Kevin Kelly was good for a minute. I don't know where he that was really good. Yeah. He stopped, yeah. he stopped commentating, but I thought he was good for a bit. I mean, it was perfect for him. The guy can't stop talking to begin yeah, with. He is a talker. <laughs> <laughs> Like that was the perfect fit for a Kevin. Twaka. Yeah. But no, he had it like a lot of those guys, some of them are not, you know, you can tell they're struggling when they try to talk a little bit, whatever. Yeah. But like but like Kevin Kelly was really good. Um the late great Jerry Quarry, uh, before he made his, you know, um bad comeback, you know, in the seventies, he was a great articulate commentator. Like, yeah, those guys, you know what I mean? They just know what they're looking at. I love Foreman too. You know, as much as it's easy to rack on him and talk some shit about him, stuff like that, the dude did have some gems. And every so often, he did have good analysis. Yeah. But it was just, it was kind of sandwiched between a bunch of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, with that being said, you know, we're talking about the history of Showtime and stuff like that. Well, all of us have our own fondest memories. I know a lot of our listeners have, like, memories that they hold close, near and dear with them. What's yours, Pat? good question man there's obviously we've gone over a lot so um i mean i'd say running at a pretty close second and i know it's not like the popular fight or whatever to to choose but honestly the rematch between jose luis castillo and diego corrales like i know everybody remembers the knockout which is fair and it also is kind of tainted because the whole weight thing but dude it was actually a really good fight for as long as it lasted and it's not just the fight, but also like the event and the experience. Cause I was there in Vegas for it with like a, there was a ton of fucking people that I knew. Uh, and so that should, that was definitely up there. But as far as just kind of, you know, taking away the experience type of thing and being in Vegas, or whatever, um, probably the Vasquez Marquez trilogy, dude. Um, were you there I, for anything? Yes. Yes. I, no just the just the the third fight um, i mean that was the best one of the bunch in my opinion yeah don't, yeah don't get me wrong like, only the third fight no i was there for the third fight and that was the best fight. how how i'm like getting flustered even just trying to get my brain working to my mouth to say this but it's like how does the first fight it's so good and then the second fight's better and then the third fight just goes yeah second fight fuck you and just is even better or you how how is that possible that third fight was bananas, you know. That last round solidified everything. Like that was incredible. I I almost got like my ass. How close were you? Were like, well, how many rows back were you? I well, uh, we were. I uh, dude, we. I was this. You know, another fortunate. 
we had a friend, I still am friends with him, but he used to get us uh, luxury boxes at Home Depot Center, then Home Depot oh, Center. So we were in one of those little boxes, free fucking food and booze and shit. And so we, you aren't that close, but at that venue, there's no bad, there's literally no bad seat. You could see it great at anywhere. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, I almost got my fucking ass kicked because going into the 12th round, I was so hyped because the fight was so wild and was like, I was like, this is probably the best fight I've ever fucking seen live. Oh my God. And I remember there was like a whole row of like max massive, like Mexican looking dudes right next to the box. And they're just like, like silent. And I looked over and I was like, what the, what's wrong with you guys? And one of the dudes stood up. Like he was like, took serious offense to me saying that. And my friends were like, yo, 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 yo. And I was just like, I'm just. Why are they gonna beat you up for? I don't know. I guess they just were mad they that I was calling them out for not being excited about this crazy fight we were watching. I mean, I wasn't calling them out. I was just like, "Yo, get what are you guys doing? Like, oh, are you yeah. all not excited by this?" And anyway, luckily nothing happened. Thank good. I would have gotten fucking destroyed. But the point is, anyway, um, the whole experience behind like all those fights and just kind of embodying so much about a lot of things great and unfortunately some of the things really bad about boxing and I call it the trilogy too there's four fights between them but I don't even count the fucking fourth one you know they get fucked so badly in the first three fights by the promoters that they had to fight a fourth unnecessary time to get paid right you know that's what I mean by it embodied uh, so many good things about boxing but a number of bad things too that these three fighters you know one fucking doesn't even have an eye anymore because of those fights and you know, and with all due respect to him because he's, you know, I, I love him, but Ezreal Vasquez looks awful and a lot of it, and some people will try to say, oh, that has, that's independent from boxing. You know, he has some disease that's, you know, degenerative. You don't think it has something? To, really? He took some vicious punishment. And yeah, he had, you don't had think these two surgeries are, on his eyes during his career? What's that? Didn't he have surgery on his eye during his career? He had a, he had a detached retina. He had severe scar uh, tissue that he got fixed I think a certain like a handful of times over his eye dude he doesn't even his doesn't even have an eye there anymore you know like he's got a fake eye and he looks like I said with all due respect awful like and again I know that that's its own he has a separate but dude he's you know is he being taken care of financially uh, anyway sorry awesome. I don't want to get into too much about that because I don't want to turn into a badness but I mean the point is like uh I do look at it that way though. Like I, I do see the good and the bad and I do see some, you know, a lot of the things that we love is, you know, do does need to be examined on the other side too. But point is that trilogy was amazing, dude. And Showtime uh, also invested into that trilogy when, sh when HBO refused, Yeah, HBO refused the first fight and they said, we're not paying that. And it was like some like bargain basement. It was like 750 grand or something. It was something crazy. And they were like, Best fight's not worth that. And Showtime was like, yes, please. Sure as fuck was. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything. Basically, it wasn't one of their stars that wouldn't do anything. But that that trilogy, amazing. And, and I'm super fortunate to have been there for the third one. Sure, that's an incredible fight to be at. I think I have uh, the credential for it because I was supposed to go. <laughs> but I didn't end up going. Um, well, yeah, what about you, dude? I mean, you've 
I mean, like, well, ringside, I was able to see, like, some some cool shit. Like, you know, being ringside for the Super 6 was pretty cool just to, like, because that was a huge event, you know what I mean? Um, anytime you went to Canada for uh, a Stevenson fight was massive for the fact that, like, look, it, even if it wasn't a big fight, like, there's something about those fans that are just, like, those dudes are wild out there. They turn people. up, dude. They turn up. They really, really do, like and to sit there and get an atmosphere of what they like bring in is just kind of like you're like whoa you know what i mean like it's it's heavy they're that's their big thing and um to sit there even when it's freezing cold but like to to witness that type of stuff is like you know it's it's cool um being ringside for a bunch of showbox shows was always like a pleasure but just like memories of myself like if i think like my favorite show uh showtime memories they go back to when I was a kid, you know, Chavez getting dropped for the first time when he lost to Frankie Randall, for instance, um, for a number of reasons. Like, you know, Chavez was looked upon as being almost invincible, even though he was showing kinks of his armor and like Pernell Whitaker clearly got robbed against him in a fight that was tele- uh, that was shown by Showtime pay-per-view. And um, that's a story in itself, actually, too. Whitaker being an HBO fighter, wanted the Showtime, you know, wanted the Chavez fight so badly that he went over to Showtime to fight on their network, you know, albeit pay-per-view, and fighting Chavez in San Antonio on top of that. Almost like, you know, a death sentence, but still um, winning the fight, like, dominating enough to show that, like, even if it was a draw, that he clearly won that fight. But, you know, when Chavez fought a guy like Randall, Randall was one of those longtime contenders who, you know, throughout the 80s and early 90s, was always one of those guys near the top of the division, but was always kind of denied a title shot had a couple of losses that derailed him when it could have like, you know, propelled him instead. And like, you knew he was a good fighter, but you just really didn't know how great he could be because he just never really got the opportunity to prove himself like that. And when he finally fights Chavez, you know, Chavez was in the midst of one of those guys that like, he was at this point that he became what Delahoya would end up becoming, if you agree with me, Pat, in the sense that like, his middling title defenses on show, you know, middling title defenses weren't going to be on Showtime anymore. They would still be on pay-per-view. It wouldn't be a big pay-per-view, but they would still be on pay-per-view. Like, you know, for instance, like Chavez, um, not for instance, like, um, excuse me, like De La Hoya against like um, Wilfredo Rivera, for instance, right? Like a fight that should be on HBO that ends up becoming a pay-per-view. Uh, Chavez against Frankie Randall which you would think should be normally on just the network, is a pay-per-view. So that's what he was kind of doing. Guys like him, David Kamau later on, and other stuff like that, you know what I mean? I think Terrence Ali, I don't know if that was on Showtime or pay-per-view, whatever it may be, but, like, it's stuff like that. So the fact that he fights them, you know, they're going through, and it's a close-ass fight, and, like, you know, Randall is doing a lot better than anyone ever anticipated. Chavez, even though he's a little bit slowed down, is, like, clearly struggling here. And then that magical moment, when what was around 11 bah, 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 he hits him with that right hand and Chavez just falls and Steve Albert the best call and down goes Chavez for the first time in his career like you know and you hear Bobby Chez your favorite guy oh I can't believe it can't believe it oh. and then Ferdy Pacheco in the most deadpan voice and oh it's good time it's goodbye title Bobby <laughs> but like you know <laughs> Chez would always have some like weird you know, like, it's over. That's it. There's no more to this. 
That's well, yeah, because Chavez got up. He probably clearly wasn't that hurt. Like, yeah, he was stunned, but he wasn't out. And then you hear, I can't believe it. Chavez is really hurt. His legs are gone. This is crazy. He's going to get up and go into a knockout or something like that. And you're like, no, that voice, like that kind of like horse's voice that he did. Like, you know, it's very sick. Staccato, mumbling type of thing he did. Yeah. Fucking weirdo. (laughs) But I mean, that was incredible to watch. Like, you know, again, I'm still a young fan. And to see my dad absolutely lose it because he wasn't a Chavez fan at this point, considering how he was whining, you know, for various things in that fight and the like all that. So to see him react, to see others react, like that was a big moment for me. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that was definitely like one of those shapers in my career as a fandom where I was just like, wow, I love this sport now. And then we recorded it. Like we had it on VHS. He recorded that one. And on the undercard was a young Felix Trinidad against Hector Camacho. And I would actually watch that fight, even though there's nothing to talk about with it really isn't anything besides that they both wore trunks of like you know represent the puerto rican flag i always watched it over and over because like i just i was excited you know but then you have that um another memory like one of my favorites um which which one was it frankie lyle's the uh tim littles their second fight you know um as a kid I had watched a couple of Lyle's fights and I wasn't like, you know, overly excited to watch him. I knew what I was getting with him. Tim Littles, I didn't watch the uh, the Tony fight at this point. I had read about him a lot. And all, all the pre-fight announcements that they were talking about was that it was going to be a very tactical, boring affair. So I was just ready to be like, oh, okay, as a kid, just like sit back and whatever I was going to deal with. You know what I mean? Probably end up walking, playing with some toys or some shit at some point. But instead they ended up having a fucking street fight, you know, that no one anticipated. Littles, for whatever his reason, was very unnerved about a lot of things and just came in there and started throttling Lyles with, like, body slams and rabbit punches and low blows and everything else in between, which unnerved Lyles enough that he was forced to, like, you know, fight a fight that he wasn't used to and, like, you know, lay out some bombs and all that, and it, it became a fucking fire fight. I know you love the fight too, right? Dude, they, they fucking, yeah, Frankie Lyles was a, he was a guy that a lot of people thought was going to go a lot farther, too. Like, I mean, with all due respect, I don't mean to be like. He was know. one of those guys that was stuck on those Don King undertards that we were, like, forced to watch on Showtime this, in Purgatory, you know? just Yeah, he was a big amateur standout and had a had a bunch of credentials and shit. He was big. I'm, he was New York guy, right? I'm not, I don't think so. No. I have to look it up. I don't, I'm not well, sure. then he, well, wherever he was from, I remember he was a. Find was out, a big, actually. Find he, that out. He was a big amateur standout. I remember he was like, at the time, he was like supposed to, you know, he was expected to do a little bit more than he did. But, dude, fucking Tim Littles, bro. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sir, it was New York. You're right. There we go. Oh, I thought it was like New York, New York. So I guess. Uh, no, sorry, but totally I mean, he was always based in like Vegas. Yeah. Not totally the same. Not exactly a New York, New York guy, but regardless. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a, that's a memory that nobody's going to be bringing up. No, I mean, like, that was just one of those as a kid. Because, like, you're watching it, and then, like, first round, with Littles, you know, start slamming in. They go around. Lyles drops him early. He's just very, like, they're going in. Eddie Futch is clearly probably having his head go, like, you know, exploding, right? Because he's Littles' trainer. And he's a guy that, like, kind of tries to keep composure and, like, relaxation in his corner and stuff like or that. Or Mitch Halpern having to, having to control this action. Yeah. And then it, it ends with it, you know, and not only because, like, I'm not just to say, like, Littles didn't do anything besides, like, roughhouse him. Like, he did hurt Lyles. He dropped him. You know, he landed some good punches. It was a fucking brawl. 
And at the end, Lyles landed one of the most precise one-punch knockouts you can see of this, you know, the modern era, just with a beautiful hook that Littles walked right into and flagged him. And, like, as a kid, I was like, yo, that was fucking awesome. I love that fight, you know? That, like, I'll always go back on, you know, and watch that with fondness because they initially, just hearing the pre-fights about it, and rightfully so, considering their backgrounds, you think it was going to be boring. And instead, it ended up being an absolute street fight that I was like, man, this is incredible. This is cool, you know? And um, it might be cliche to say, but, like, the first Tyson Holyfield fight, you know, as a kid, excuse me, as a kid, um, I never admit this on Twitter or anything like that because who would believe you or even think about it? But, like, amongst my friends, I was the only one that picked Holyfield to win that fight. And I only I had a simple logic. I wasn't no knowledgeable boxing fan that had all this insight into it and thinking to myself, oh yeah, yeah, I know all this kind of crap or whatever. All I knew as a fan at that point was Tyson had just come back. What I had seen him do in this comeback, he didn't look good at all against Buster Mathis. Like I saw that at much. You know, he and he didn't have to do anything against Bruce Selden or um uh, Frank Bruno. So I just put logic together. I was like, Holyfield hasn't been looking great either, but if he can get past four rounds, I think he can beat him because Tyson hasn't been four or five rounds. And I think he's going to, like in my mind, I was like, I think he's going to struggle if he can't go past five rounds because like the fuck has he been doing, right? And I told everyone that and everyone's just like, oh man, you you kidding me? Tyson's going to murder him and blah, blah, blah. And I get it. Like Ring Magazine predicted in their in their preview, you know, the one with the with the cover of the of them, Face the face of the cartoon, they said that he was going to knock him on the first round. Eddie Futch was quoted in that saying that he was afraid Holyfield was going to get mur- like legitimately killed. Everyone else was saying that he was going to lose, except for like one guy linked with the Holyfield camp. There's a lot of revisionist history, bro. That fool was a massive favorite for. I mean, I'm not saying that they were correct in making him a massive favorite, but I'm saying it was for a reason, and it wasn't oh, just was one person thinking this. And I, again, I'm not trying to say that I was some kind of fucking like Eddie Futch, you know. No, Ray there were Fulton people who called it. I just had an idea that, like, all I said was, like, if he can go past four rounds, I think he's going to beat him. And no one believed me. And then he went past four rounds and beat his ass. And I was just like, wow. And that, again, that, like, pushed me as a boxer anymore because I was like, holy crap, I got that right. Like, you know what I mean? And, and you know what's crazy, dude? In my opinion, just to cut you off slightly, in, no, no, both, no. in both fights, I do think that Mike Tyson did a little bit better than people, like, remember. If you look early in both fights, he was actually doing okay. Dude, yeah, absolutely. And he was landing bombs that would take out most heavyweights too. Man, Holyfield he was had doing all right. Of, yeah. Holyfield had the type of resolve that, like, well, one, you know, he was coming off the heart issue, and then we didn't know that he had hepatitis, and that's why you had the topsy turvy result with Bo and all this stuff. So I get has and then you know the uneven performance with Bobby Chess. Yeah, he stops him, but he he didn't look good, right? I I think my reaction why I picked him is because I wasn't that experienced in studying fighters like that at that point. Like, I didn't see him when he fought Chez that looked like he was, you know, shocked to bits. I was still like, I was like, I don't know, he beat him. He knocked, he beat him up, whatever, right? I was more intrigued by Ray Mercer and Lennox Lewis anyways. So I didn't even think twice about that fight after he beat him to think back and be like, whoa, he looked really bad against Bobby Chez. He's going to get killed against Tyson. Yeah. He just figured Tyson hasn't done shit himself. Holyfield's the first legit oh, guy he's going to fight. If he can go past five rounds, he's going to beat him. And then he did. And I was just like, I don't know. That just like inspired me more to think like, this is my sport because like I got this right. And then I definitely threw that in my friend's faces and my boxing trainer who questioned me. <laughs> like, yeah, and, I, didn't, and, I didn't make a pick for the fight, but I remember telling you 
that my parents used to go out of town like on cruises or whatever every so often and at one time i left at my stepsister's house and we were watching tyson selden and everybody was so fucking pissed because they were like that shit was fixed it was fucked up so dude a lot of people forget about that shit that was one of the most atrocious fights you can ever see bro i mean he clearly i don't i don't know out bro he bowed out yeah, that's not even worth bringing up right now. But I mean, like, that whole era was just fascinating. You got that, and then, like, you know, the bite fight afterwards. So, like, the whole Tyson era was just fascinating because Showtime provided you that whole time of him, you know, like, that was... And they might have kind of taken a slight reputational hit because of that, too, going into the 2000s because of their yes. their willingness to keep broadcasting Mike Tyson fights when, bro, you remember at the time, dude, Time Magazine, fucking People Magazine, every fucking major publication was like, he's a thug, he's a fucking murderer, he's an awful, you know, everybody was really jumping on that narrative. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm simply saying that, like, Showtime going up against that, dude, it was kind of an uphill battle for them, I think. To a degree, but you got to remember, dude, this is like the late 90s. Yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. They profited, I'm just saying, you know. Yeah, 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 because, like, that was the one era where all the salacious, crazy shit that you want that's, like, so, what the hell? You want to show that because, like, people were, exactly. like, Exactly. You can't not show Springer. it. That was the Jerry Springer crazy era where, like, you know, we thirsted for, like, wild content. And Tyson, now I have to talk about the bite fight, immediately coming back and trying to break Franz Bolta's arm. and or yeah. Going after Savarese when the ref, and then knocking the ref down. Bro, you know, people hated him for like five years Orlando Norris after the break and poor Orland popping his knee or whatever. Oh, geez. Yeah. And basically ending his career. Bro, people hated Mike Tyson. <laughs> I'm for sorry. Like there five was so straight. much crazy shit that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's almost like a wonder how the fuck did, was he, what? How's, how was he not go back to jail? Jesus. Late Christ. 90s Tyson was such a wild time. Bro, bro you like, remember motherfuckers would just randomly try to pick fights with him on the street too? Like every other week he was in the fucking news because there was some guy just like trying to fight him. Like, can you imagine? Like you're just walking down the street and you yeah, see yeah, Mike yeah. Tyson. You're like, what's up, Mike? What? Early, yeah, that was the such fuck? a crazy era. Absolute crazy era, but like. We're crazy. Again, Showtime at that point was still they they just had a lot of stuff that they were just showing. Like you know, this wasn't one of my highlights because considering what happened, but like I remember watching Ben McClellan with my dad. Like I just a lot of bonding happened watching those fights. You know, whether they were good ones or just like shitty ones, I never thought in my mind that I would be actually like contributing and doing the stats for those fights one day. That's how it all kind of came to. You know what I mean? Like, um. Also worth mentioning too in their history, like they were they were the ones that early in their in their career they they um they aired uh Iron Barkley Thomas Hearns their first fight like that was another one you know that has to be worth that has to be mentioned. I don't want to talk about. I mean, no, I got a fucking tattoo of Tommy Hearns. You think I want to talk about it either? But like, it's you know, it, it has to be mentioned that like early in their Never career, happened. Yeah, right. You know, there there was some wild moments there. You know, and then, so I'm always going to be fond of that type of stuff. There was, like, again, they introduced me to Hamed. Like, you know, before HBO picked him up for the Kevin Kelly fight, we watched Hamed against uh, Daniel Alisea, and then you watched him struggle against Manuel Medina. And in your hometown, December, (laughs) Madison Square Garden, you get knocked out. 
you had those guys like Wilfredo Vasquez, who, you know, to his credit, was featured on HBO against Orlando Canizales, but then got relegated back to Showtime. We we saw a show, we, you know, Showtime would air those guys. That's all I'm trying to say is that, like, they would just air the fights that normally you wouldn't see. Charles Brewer, one of my all-time favorites as a kid, his, uh, his hatchet fight, you know, the hatchet, yeah, he was on Showtime. Um, Vasquez, when he knocked out um, Alori Rojas, one of my favorite knockouts of all time. And as an early, you know, fan that was on Showtime when like Mitch Halpern, God bless him, like people, you know, whatever you want to say, whatever, like he, this, yeah, he was such a great referee that like when Rojas gets hit with a bop, bop, and starts like Halpern just grabs him like a kid, like about yeah. to fall. He almost but, gets hit like around Halpern, almost like yeah. it's like he around his head. Halpern. And he's Halpern like, grabs- he the way Halpern grabs him as a kid, I thought Halpern actually hit him initially. That's like his yeah, arm. He like he like cradled him. He was like, boom, gotcha. It's like the shit that you see now in like the Muay Thai shit that like goes fucking viral and the refs are like catching the knock. He did that, you know, he was the start. And sorry, you know, sorry for the listeners right now for me, like jumping around to all kinds of different things, but like there was just what the episodes for. That's this is, you know, this is what happened. Like during this, like this era that like, I remember like Showtime was just great for that. So. Well, and you know, and I'm, I'm not one of those people who's going to fucking shake my, you know, you need to be grateful because I'm, I talk shit and whine and complain as much as anybody, but no, but no, I mean, I, I do think we should at least recognize uh, what Showtime brought to the equation for you know almost forty years in boxing, and that, bro, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I want to say it was like twelve years or something like that that um, uh, Gillette Friday Night Fights, yeah, they were only on for like twelve years, so comparatively, I mean, Showtime's been on for almost forty years, bro. Yeah, you know, like. It's crazy. So they they definitely have their share of know, bringing us memories, dude. Yeah, it's just it's it's sad. Like HBO and the other networks. Like we grew up in a there's different generations of fight fans, of where whether they came up or whether they started watching, whatever it may be. And a lot of these current fans on Twitter who are younger, you know, just kind of grew up in the era that they're doing right now. Like, yeah, they had Showtime, but like they don't really remember the golden years or like the golden years. Who's going to be talking about the golden years of DAZN? You know what I'm saying? Like, with all due respect. Yes, I I couldn't tell you. Nah, the fight starts now. No, I don't know. (laughs) Um, The fight! No, I'm not going to do that. Fucking guy. Please don't. (laughs) No, not finishing it. It's still Uh, the holidays, man. Spare the fans. I said! No. But... Um, it, it's just one of those things that feels like an end of an era, you know, whether you came of age as a fan during this time, before this time or whatever, it's been with you for all these years and you hold near and dear all these memories and the recaps of reading it up in the magazines and all this shit. And it's kind of like, damn, man, you know, look, boxing's always going to evolve that like, this is the sport that will never die as much as like other people will try to say, okay, it's ending, it's done, it's done and yada, 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 bullshit, blah, 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 blah. The sport's never going to end. We already know that. And I'm both of us are thankful for that. Everybody that, you know, listens to the show and all, all boxing fans are thankful for that because we know that. And it evolves. You know what I mean? Like PBC was the main provider for Showtime. That They've already moved on. They got a new deal. And we're just going to figure out how it goes, you know, into 2024. But it's still sad. And it still sucks because, like, it's the end of an era when it comes to, the you know, the networks and what we grew up on and what we were appreciative of and 
you know, the, the announcers and the history and the fights and all that. But I'm always going to stay optimistic and I'm always going to stay good and, you know, to see where we can go with this. And I know you are too. So like, it is what it is. Almost 40 years, dude. That's a lifetime. Yeah. Um, fighters, fans, media people have been born and died in that time. Of people I just wish more was, you know, available on YouTube. And it was until, you know, haters decided to jump in and report those uh, accounts. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that kind of goes, I guess, with what I was saying earlier. I wish there were a little bit more. Dude, broadcast rights are a bear when it comes to legality. I, I know that. And so I'm not ignorant to it. I'm just saying I wish in a more ideal world we would have greater immediate access to without having to pay a fucking arm and a leg to a lot of this history. Um, and that's part of the reason why so many people are ignorant to it. Um, you know, we're doing our best. To, to raise awareness and you know we're doing our part to pass this on and pass on the memories and you know kind of look into facts and behind the scenes you know, we're doing what we can but um you know it would be really helpful to have more so that that part kind of sucks but we'll always have paris you know we got we got those memories man yeah exactly exactly <laughs> well dude i appreciate it dude because you know it's not like it was homework it was fun you know recalling reminiscing but still, I, I appreciate it, bro, because you know, got to kind of reach deep into the recesses of your memory for some of this stuff. Always. But that's what a history account does, right? <laughs> for sure, bro. Well, I, again, I appreciate it. And everybody who uh, listened in, uh, I, I know that if you're a listener, there has been issues with um, accessing the podcast lately. That's going to change in the new year. I got to... I got to update some shit. It's just going to take time and it sucks and I've been putting it off, but I will do it for the new year. That said, if you do listen in, we appreciate you. Go ahead and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in and go ahead and leave us a comment and rating those kinds of things. As far as YouTube, if you watched, again, also thank you. Subscribe, leave a comment, I'll thumbs up it or something like that or avoid it because I'm anti so you know, some of those types of things. <laughs> but Eris, appreciate you again. It, my buddy Eris is on social media for now. Still on X slash Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. I'm there as the Boxing History account, but also Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram if you want to follow us there. And we'll see you there, Eris. We'll talk soon, bro. Happy New Year, everybody. Indeed. Happy New Year. Happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe. <laughs>